get your family vehicles ready for summer driving with early Memorial Day deals at Dobbs. Click on GoToDobbs.com for money, saver retire, and service deals today. Dobbs. With 43 locations, real deals are always close by. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, I'm Dan for Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers, here to share the easiest way to buy tires. Come to Dobbs. With the best tire brands and the biggest inventory, you'll get your tires the same day at the lowest price, guaranteed. Next time you need tires, get into Dobbs. Time now for the BK and Ferrario podcast, presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Pass to Shen. Over the line to Sod. Shoots. Score! Ackland tied it up for Calgary. Then Shen gets it. They get it in front. Score! Sod is second of the game. Nobody in front of the net, though, as he dances behind the goal. Now they get there. Kairou shoots. Score! He waited till Markstrom went down, and Kairou puts it in. Bring out the Zamboni. Good home win. Great response for the Blues. And a 5-1 victory keeps pace in the Central Division. Alongside Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kiley. It is BK and Ferrario on 101 ESPN. And Alex, that is the team that we've seen all year long and not the team that we saw earlier this week when those two teams met. What happened? What changed? (laughs) Because I, I, I missed watching that version of the Blues and then last night, man, they absolutely dominated the Calgary Flames from start to finish. They finished the game with a 5-1 to one victory. We are live at the new ENB Granite Studio at the Centene Community Ice Center. Tanner Hendrickson back in the studio for us today. What would you see last night from the Blues in that big win, man? Well, if you were to ask Craig Berube after the game what happened, he would probably tell you, well, we were skating. But, I mean, I think that, the one, the Blues were just, they were on home ice, which seems to be some type of magic for this team this season. But second, they were playing the style that always leads to their success. They rebound after losses so well. And what made them successful last night was defensively they were confident in themselves. I mean, from the puck drop of that game, the Blues immediately brought it to Calgary. And I love the fact that Craig Berube started with the Shen Perron sideline. It's one guy that's looking to find his game, one guy that has found his game, and another guy who has had his game all season. So I thought it was a perfect recipe for success, but it's not so much the offense. Yes, that line dominated last night with, what was it, three points for Saad, two points for Braden Shen, but I was more impressed by, from the get-go, they were forechecking, they were finishing checks, they were putting bodies on the Calgary Flames, and when Calgary tried to get things going, Blues eliminated it. There was no opportunity for Calgary to get set up in the offensive zone. There were moments where the Blues would give up odd man rushes like, Power play was not good last night for the Blues, despite them still scoring a power play goal. 
But what happened is the Blues got to that mentality of offense leads our defense. The more time we spend in the offensive zone, the less time we got to spend in our own zone. And when they do that, the defense doesn't have to be feeling like they're just pushed against a wall. They can be a little creative, but then they also got the goaltending. So I thought it was a perfect recipe of a 200-foot game for the Blues, but defensively, that was that was a very impressive game after how bad they were Monday night. Yeah, and it just seemed to me like that was... Like, I don't want to make more of it than it was last night because that's just the Blues team we've seen all year. And this is why yesterday when we talked to Brian Lawton, he said, hey, as a general manager, as a coach, I'm just throwing away the tape that we saw against the Calgary Flames because it was the first time all year, really, that we had seen the Blues just completely not show up. They no-showed against Calgary in the first game uh, this week. And then in the second one, they just looked like the Blues team that we've seen all year, frankly. Like Brandon Saad with a couple of rush opportunities. You see Robert Thomas and Jordan Cairo playing the two-man game. Marco Scandella, a couple of big-time plays for the big fella also last night. Also on the penalty kill, man. He was huge on that penalty kill. I mean, you, you basically just saw what we've seen all year, which is different guys stepping up. I mean, what, what are you looking at right now for... Uh, Vladimir Tarasenko. It's six games that he has zero goals. I think it's like four shots in his last four games. One shot in every game in the last four games. That's not what you expect out of Vladdy. No. But you know what? It doesn't matter right now because the Blues have so much depth of scoring, which is what we've been talking about all season long, that they're able to overcome that. Man, this team two, three, four, five years ago, even last year, honestly, if they had a couple of their top guys struggling to get put the puck in the back of the net, you'd feel that. And there would be questions about it after every game. Hey, you know, Vladdy not being able to find the back of the net right now. What's going on? Is he in a good mental space right now, Burby? You don't have to worry about that right now because you've got guys like Brandon Saad and Pavel Buchnevich and Jordan Kairou and uh, Braden Shin playing a great game last night. When they are able to elevate their games and they're able to continue, last night you scored five goals against a really good opponent. You don't have to worry about the guys that are struggling. It's just to focus on the guys that are playing well. And then when you got the goalie at the back end, and Alex, this is really the key to last night in my mind, you don't need your goalie to be spectacular. This team is good enough that they can overcome just merely good from their goaltender. But you got to make a few. You got to make a few big saves. And last night, Ville Husso, that is all that was required of him, was making a few big-time saves. He made those when he needed to. And that gave the Blues enough time to be able to eventually suffocate the the Calgary Flames, make enough big plays, and boom, you're off and run into a 5-1 to victory. Yeah, I call them game-changing saves. And because of the moment of the game, it could change the momentum of it. And the first one I'm thinking of is uh, Michael Backlund on the penalty kill who gets a breakaway. Yep. And the first time, he slips up and misses the shot. I think he had Huso beat. But the second time, Huso makes the save. I'm thinking of Johnny Goudreau and Matthew Kachuk coming down the ice with a two-on-one, and Huso gets a leg kick out to keep that one-timer away. I'm also thinking of the play where that bouncing puck came to the front of the net with bodies in front, and Huso standing up, pushes it out, and then dives on it to close it out. Those are the types of saves. You don't need your goalie to be outstanding every night. Frankly, he shouldn't have to be outstanding every night. The key to a successful game is making it easy on your goaltender But when you have slip-ups, the goalie making those saves. And really, when we talk about Jordan Bennington's struggles, and you go back to that Monday loss against Calgary, one, the Blues didn't have their legs, which I think it's very evident. But two, you look for that head dip moment. Blues score their first goal, and what happens a little over 60 seconds later? 
Zadaroff beats Pennington in a goal that he'd tell you he wants to have back. That was the head dip moment of, oh, sheesh, we're going to have to do this for the rest of the night, and then what what took place happened. Look at that Villejuso game. When it's 1-1 and Goudreau and Kachuk come down the ice with a two-on-one, he makes that kick save. That's where, okay, boys, we're in this one. He's locked in. Now we can play our style. The Blues system does not play in their own zone. The blue system plays in the offensive zone. So there are going to be turnovers. There are going to be poor puck management plays. you got to have your goaltender make those saves. Huso has been outstanding at that all season, and he's feeling it right now. He's confident. When he's confident, the team's confident, which is why he's so successful on home ice. And as we kind of push this thing forward, the Blues now have one more game before the break. My assumption would be that you're going to see tomorrow night in net Ville Husso. I, I think that's I think that's the way you gotta go. After what he did for you last night, I maybe it was a conversation. If Husso gives up three goals, four goals in that game, maybe you're having a conversation today about, hey, do we give Jordan Bennington one shot here before the break and see maybe where he's at mentally? I think after last night's performance, you just say to to Bennington, hey, get yourself right mentally. Give yourself ten days. Don't even think about coming and playing on the ice tomorrow night. You're not going to be nece- it's not going to be necessary. You're not going to be needed. We've got Huso to be able to take care of this. You get yourself right because we need you at the top of your game for the second half of the season. And Alex, I, I think the tough part for me is when they do return to the ice after this break, I'm not sure how you go away from Huso right now, man. Brandon saw it last night after the game, basically said like, hey, I'm not sure there's another goalie in the league playing at a higher level right now than Villejoso. He's really confident. It gives us confidence. And when he's out there, we're playing very well right now. So you got those comments from from Saad. I, I, I just, I don't know right now what you do with the goalie situation. Well, statistically, Saad's not wrong. Uh, I mean, well, let me let me correct that. He's not the best goalie in the league because we all know who the best goalie in the league is. Chucky Sideburns, who still has the number one goals against the number one save percentage. But look, Vili Huso on home ice, he's been outstanding. And look, you got to get Bennington back in. I'm with you. You have to play Huso tomorrow afternoon against the Winnipeg Jets because you need points. Everyone in the Central Division is winning. Nashville went to a shootout last night against the Edmonton Oilers. Minnesota has been winning. Colorado doesn't stop winning. And don't look now, but Dallas is picking up points. You have to pick up points right now in the Central Division. And if it's a confidence issue with Craig Baru or with Jordan Bennington, you go to Ville Husso tomorrow afternoon. But you got to get Bennington back in because you got to find out if he's got his confidence. So I would imagine that as soon as they come out of that break against the New Jersey Devils on February 10th, that'll be Bennington's net. I'd go Huso. If Bennington falters in that game, then you're going right back to Huso. And you right. I think what this is now is they have a schedule in place. We all know this, but that changes with play, and that's why Huso's going to get the net again tomorrow. But you got to get Bennington the shot, and if Bennington falters once again. Then you're going to go back to Huso. And if Huso plays out, you're going to go back to Huso. And then you're going to find a spot to get Bennington back in. It's it's basically the flip of what they started this season with Bennington. And that's what I was going to say is I think it you go full, full bore in that. I, I think you just say for right now, and this is not again what you do the entire rest of the season, but for the here and now, I think it's Huso's net and Jordan Bennington picks his spots. And so when you get back on February 10th, I think Huso gets that first start. I think Huso might even get that second start because you're on home ice, and he has been freaking incredible this year on home ice. And then you go on the road on a Canadian road trip with Ottawa and Montreal and Toronto. 
I think that's where you give Jordan Bennington that start against and Montreal. See, I'm doing the flip side of that because this team does not like playing in Canada, and I'd be worried Calgary happens again. If I'm going to give Jordan Bennington the net, I'm going to give it to him on home ice where this team does not seem to be losing hockey games. And on top of it, if I don't play him, so if that Calgary game was the last time he played, which would have been, what, the 23rd? And then he doesn't play yeah. again until February 10th. And I know there's a break in there. Yeah, I mean, that's going to have to be the case. The, the the earliest that you could play him again is February 10th. I'm saying you wait until February 15th. So you get three yeah, weeks off. I, I, I'm not going to. If I want to build Bennington's confidence, I'm going to put him in net where the team is playing their best. And that's on home ice. Whether it be February 10th or February 12th, he's going to get one of those home games. And for me, Huso's playing outstanding. And you need Huso right now. But it's not he's the number one goaltender. Bennington's still the number one guy. You ask anybody, he's the number one guy. It's I don't just know right Huso now. Needs your points. I think I think Bennington finishes the year as the number one guy. But right now, Huso's your best goalie. But you got to get spots for Bennington. I- I'm with you, and he can get these spots just like at the beginning of the season. They were able to get Huso his opportunities. They were able to get uh, Lindgren his spots whenever he came up. Like I, I, I think this is a situation where it's flipped. And this happens with goalies. It's like relief pitchers where it it fluctuates, right? It goes up and down, and you've got a guy that's going through a little bit of a dry spell right now with Jordan Bennington. I think he's going to be fine, and I... We've said this the entire time. We've never wavered on this, Alex. Bennington's going to be your guy when you go into the playoffs. But you've still got three months before you get to the playoffs. And in the immediacy, you mentioned how damn competitive this central division is. you got to keep racking up these points. And it's hard for me to look at the team right now, the way that they've been playing, and say to my team, if I'm Craig Berube, the guy that gives us the best chance to win right now is Jordan Bennington. I just don't know how anybody can make that argument well, it's, today. It's just not true right now. And nobody would believe him if he said that to his team. But what he does know is that team loves Jordan Bennington. They want Jordan Bennington to succeed. And you got to get his confidence back. Absolutely. And that's why he gets one out of every three starts. The other two, Unless though, right now. Well. But here's the thing. If Bennington, if Bennington steps into the net, and he has a performance like Huso does last night, I'm going back to Bennington. See, that's the thing, though. I can't do that. Oh, you have Beca- to. Because it's it's a one-off for Bennington, whereas Huso's done that all season long. But it's a one-off for Huso at the beginning of the season. Huso Absolutely, and it. that's why it took this long to get to this point. We are now, what, yeah, but when four months number, into the season? But when your number one guy has confidence, you let it ride. You're not going to tr- You're not gonna let him go out and put a performance like that and say, great job, Bennington, now hit the bench, and we're not going to play you for a couple of games. Oh, I'm not saying – but – so the reason what, what what I'm what I'm saying is I, I should I should be more clear. I'm going to Huso on Thursday, February 10th. I'm starting him in that game against New Jersey. I would start him again on home ice because of how great he's been and he's earned it in my mind against Chicago on that Saturday. And then I would start Bennington on the following Tuesday against Ottawa. If he's fantastic in that game, you get one more game, probably against Toronto or Montreal in the next two. And you just keep on going that way, man. This is a split net in my mind. I'm not saying that Bennington gets no starts, but Huso has earned the right to be the number one guy right now. He gets the majority of the starts for now. If something changes, if we get more evidence and Huso, he's on a heater right now and he takes a little bit of a step back and Bennington's on a, on a dry spell right now and he takes a step forward. Okay, that can flip. But it takes a little while for that to happen. you got to earn my trust back. It can't happen overnight. If I get cheated on, Alex, I don't just suddenly go back. Like, it takes me a minute. So I've been burned by Bennington too many times this season. I I think that Huso has earned the right to get the majority of the starts coming out of this break. 
for and now. I, and I think he will. I think you're. I think you're going to see him play at least for the first couple of weeks when they come back more than Bennington. But I would have Bennington probably play that first or second game back on home ice because I got to put him in front of a team that's performing well. And like it or not. Going into Canada is not this team's expertise. I said this on pregame last night. They're 4-4 four and four against Canadian teams this season. Two of their four losses, three of their four losses are in Canada. And one of their victories in Canada was against the Winnipeg Jets where Bennington had to steal the game and also the Vancouver Canucks where Huso had to yeah. steal that game. So this team does not perform well in Canada. So when I look at a road trip for the Blues, I look at I need Ville Huso because I know my team's not going to be at their best, whereas I also have to know that Bennington needs that confidence booster and I got to put a good team in front of him. And unfortunately, right now, the only place this team seems to play well is on home ice. He's Alex Ferrario, Tanner Hendrickson back in the studio for us today. I'm Brandon Kiley. Alex and I are broadcasting live from the E&B Granite Studio at the Centene Community Ice Center. Coming up in about 15 minutes, we're going to be joined out here at Centene Community Ice Center by Mike McKenna, former NHL goalie, now with the Daily Faceoff. Excited to get his thoughts on this, Alex. I want to get his perspective on what you do in net. Ville Husso is clearly the number two goalie for the Blues long term. That's the plan for him. But right now, he has so severely outperformed Bennington. I, I think you got to give him at least the opportunity to earn that number one job for right now. We'll talk to Mike McKenna about how you handle that coming up in 15 minutes. But next, I thought earlier today, Katie Wu had a fascinating story over on The Athletic. She put together a survey of Cardinals fans and asked them, what do you think is the single biggest need remaining once this thing opens back up after the lockout is coming to an end? We'll tell you what the Cardinals fans said in that survey next on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. He's Alex Ferrario. That's Tanner Hendrickson, and I'm Brandon Kylie. It's BK and Ferrario on 101 ESPN. Alex, I think we have internet. We got internet? I think we got internet. We got internet. Hey. Chucky Sideburns. Okay, that was necessary. Huso. Jordan Pennington. Huso. Huso. We are live from the E&B Granite Studio at the Centene Community Ice Center. Let like me a... tell you, doing a show with no text line, no internet, no nothing, and doing it with a notepad as to how we're doing our rundown. Nice. I feel like a 13-year-old that just found out AOL worked at his house. It's certainly pretty wild, so uh, it's oh, been I nice it. just to it. bring you guys behind the glass as to what's taking place right now. Uh, we, we love our studio out here, but we just had a little bit of a technical difficulty for the first 30 minutes or so that we were out here. All right, hey, neither here air. nor there. Alex, earlier today, I was reading over on The Athletic, and Katie Wu had a story about uh, how Cardinals fans are feeling about the team right now. And she asked Cardinals fans what the biggest offseason need is for the front office after things open back up after this lockout comes to an end. And according to this, I was very surprised by this story, actually. Tanner, have you seen the results of this yet? Yeah, the starting pitcher was the okay, well, favorite. Well, there we go. Thanks, buddy. Oh, sorry. My Thanks bad. Thanks for ruining the segment. Oh, sorry. What, you think we didn't have internet or something? Yeah. <laughs> starting pitching was the leading contender here from Cardinals fans on what this team still needs. 50% of the audience that, re- that responded to this question said the Cardinals still need more starting pitching. Alex, after that, 
A combined 50% said the biggest need is either a big bat or relief pitching. Oh, that's 28, starting pitching, though. 28% on a big bat, 20% on relief. So uh, it's pretty clear at this point. We just have a different view of this starting rotation from the vast majority of other people. Whether it be nationally, everybody is telling us that the Cardinals need starting pitching. My question, and now locally, Cardinals fans seem to believe the same thing. My question according to, to that for Cardinals fans would be then, who do you want? Because, like, do you want to go spend $25 million on Carlos Radon? Because that doesn't make much sense. Do you really want to go give Clayton Kershaw $15 million? And then, when you're spending that money on those guys... Where are they going to be at? Where are they pitching in your rotation? Who are you pulling out of your rotation? I just don't understand going out and getting a starting pitcher unless it's a Wade LeBlanc or something like that that can you can tell, hey, you'll be a part of our team if you make it out of spring training, but if not, you'll head to the AAA. Other than that, what are we doing here with a starting pitcher? That's not, that's not going to make your team significantly closer to a World Series contender, in my opinion. Tanner, how do you feel about this? I'm I'm with Alex. I I don't find starting pitching to be the biggest need for the St. Louis Cardinals. I'm still it's the bat. I, I think they still need to improve the offense. I I'm with Alex. I just don't know where you put a starter now, because I, I view Jake Woodford as being that kind of sixth starter for them heading into the year. Alex Reyes is kind of that seventh guy for them. So I don't see the need for a starting pitcher. And I'm of the mindset of. I know what we saw, and we, it wasn't pretty, and what we saw from Woodford, Oviedo, and what the guys coming from the minor leagues last year, but I do think that they will be better. I, I think that Oviedo got a chance to go down to AAA, and he'll go down to AAA to begin this season. I think he's going to have some of that fine that seasoning, and I don't expect him to perform as inconsistent, inconsistently as he did this past year. I expect the guys that were down in the minor leagues as the depth pieces last year to be a little bit better this year, and plus you're going to be throwing Matthew Libertor into this conversation. The best starters remaining on the market, this is according to Jim Bowden, the former Major League Baseball general manager who now writes over at The Athletic and does some stuff for MLB Network, said the best starting pitchers remaining, Carlos Rodon, who has a ton of injury questions in his own right, Clayton Kershaw, who we don't even know if he's going to play next year, Zach Grinke, who is like 52 years old. I think he's twice my age currently. Yeah, that's fine. He's, 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 he's uh, longevity. He can stay going. You know? Michael Pineda, who I'm not even sure is better right now than Jake Woodford. KK, we went through that experiment last year. Tyler Anderson, who is fine, but I don't think is better right now than Jake Woodford either. And then the guys that are all kind of the same, which is Brett Anderson, Zach Davies, and Drew Smiley. So awesome. Those are the guys that are available to you. Alex, I'm not sure that any of them are significant upgrades for you right now and certainly the top guys that are available with Rodon, Kershaw, Pineda they don't solve your injury questions so it's fine to think that the Cardinals need another starting pitcher I don't necessarily disagree with that assessment but you also have to then have an answer as to who you're going to get to solve those questions it's almost like having a college football coach that you think is super average and then you look out on the market and you're like ah why would we fire this guy when everybody that's available we're not sure any of them are actual upgrades over what we currently have. Yeah, well, and that's the thing for me, too. Like, So you're going to try and bring in one of these starting pitchers. What's your selling point to? You call up a Zach Granke and say, hey, we want you to sign with us. We'll give you $8 million. What's your selling point? Hey, you're going to get 200 innings with us. No, your selling point would be, well, hey, you will be a part of our rotation if one of these five guys drop out. If this, if this vote from the fans were was more accredited to, like, I think the Cardinals need a starting pitcher at some point this season, 
then I can understand that trade deadline when you figure out that this team's going through an injury or maybe injuries pop up and you have to do what you did with Wade LeBlanc and the guys that you brought in, John Lester. But to sit here and say that the first move that the Cardinals need to make when things pick back up, I just don't know where that player is going to be a part of this team. And again, if he's not making an impact on the offense or if he's not making an impact in the bullpen, the areas that were a little questioning, I don't know how that impacts a full season. So the other thing that I found interesting, the follow-up question to this was, which of the remaining free agents would you like to see the Cardinals pursue? And among the list that was provided... Be Grinky and Kershaw, <laughs> uh, Kershaw and Rodon. Nope, those guys combined... Uh, received about 15% of the vote, including Kershaw, who got 0.5%. But but we want starting pitching. Zach Greinke, who got 0.3% of the vote. The top player on this list was Joe Kelly, a reliever, who, when you go back to what do the Cardinals need after they return, only 20% of their responses said relief pitching. So that's a little bit of a uh, disconnect there. Trevor Story was next, naturally, big bat. Kyle Schwarber at 20%. Carlos Correa, I'm, I'm in agreement with that. It ain't happening, but I think that's a great idea at 16%. The only starting pitch received more than 1% of the vote, Alex, was Carlos Rodon, who has all of the injury questions that you currently have in your rotation with a guy like Miles Michaelis. So I guess I'm just a little confused as to, okay, you've got this issue. There just don't seem to be a whole lot of solutions to that problem that people see on the open market. Well. You know, why not? Hey, maybe Kyle Schwarber can pitch. Maybe that's what they're hoping. He's got a lethal arm from the outfield. Yeah, something like that. Fastball? Maybe that's what it is. Maybe. He's a utility. He's like a Jose Okendo. He's Alex Ferrario. Secret weapon. Tanner Hendrickson back in the studio for us today. We are broadcasting live from the E&B Granite Studio at the Centene Community Ice Center. Can't wait for this one. Coming up next, we've got Mike McKenna. He's a former NHL goalie. He's been in these spots. He knows what it's like to be Ville Husso, who's on an absolute heater right now. What do you do whenever you get back from this break? Does he end up being the number one goalie, at least for now? We'll ask Mike McKenna, former NHL goalie, about that when he joins us next in studio on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast, presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Alongside Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kylie. It's BK and Ferrario filling in today for the balloon party. They will be back on Monday. The guys will be with you Monday from 10 to 11 o'clock. But we are live at the ENB Granite Studio out at the Centene Community Ice Center. And we are joined in studio. A rare treat for us to be joined in studio by former NHL goalie, now daily face-off NHL analyst. He is Mike McKenna joining us here on the show. Mike, how you doing today, man? Man, I'm good. You know, I had so much fun last night being in the building for an NHL game. And I haven't gone to too many this season, but there's certain teams that you see coming along, and it's like, man, Calgary has been really good this year. And considering how that last game went in Calgary <laughs> early in the week with the absolute drubbing of the Blues, I'm like, i got to be in the building for this one. <laughs> And, man, last night didn't disappoint. The Blues nope. flipped the script. I, it wasn't a blowout by traditional standards in that they weren't leading 5-1 midway through the game. But it was really fun, man. It was a pretty loose game. Like, there was a lot of action at both ends. I got to see some some pretty good goaltending, which, of course, being the old goalie, like, <laughs> got me going. So, man, yeah, life's good here out at Centene, coaching the Blues Warrior team and the Warrior Classic. Uh, teams all comprised of veteran, uh, veterans that served in our military. And got teams from all over the country here. It's a good deal, man. How have the games gone today? Because we had four of the, uh, the, the gentlemen, a part of the Warrior program on last night. I think it was Aaron Gregg. 
uh, Tim and TJ, if I'm not mistaken, but we had four of them, and I mean, they were phenomenal to talk with last yeah. night. Well, and, and thanks so much to you guys for having them on. Their message is, is really important, and uh, any chance they get to be able to spread that to get the support for this. And, and they're very, very lucky that the St. Louis Blues have been so good to our Warrior team here in St. Louis. There are teams around the nation that do not get support from NHL teams. Yeah. And I can't think of a better cause, a better group of people to support than our veterans that are on these teams. We have four teams here in St. Louis, over 100 players. Um, they're, they're going uh, okay so far. <laughs> you know, I came running down from our Bravo team, which is we have four levels. And Bravo is, I guess you could call B-level. Well, they were just up 4-2, to two, then 4-3, and I had to leave with 30 seconds left to get down oh, here. No. So I'm hoping they held on. Um, but and as what? Alex knows, we do not get service in this room. Yeah, so, so I you can't imagine any texts are coming through no, right now. No, not a bit. I mean, this is like a concrete box, man. You can't, I can't believe you could even get anything delivered in here. It's like hermetically sealed. But Only beer. That's what we get. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, we coached Delta this morning as the team that I coach, and, and we, did, we did put four shots on goal. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but you know what? We had a lot of fun, and yeah. really, this is with the Warriors. It's it, it's about the camaraderie, totally. the locker room, and and the greater mission for it. And, yeah. Uh, but everybody wants to win, so we're and they're starting to build rivalries too. They were talking about how they were looking forward because I guess Philly is the rivalry that they have. So yeah. I, I don't know. It was just such a cool story, and of course, we'll get into the Blues. But I just thought it was important to talk about that because I mean, these guys are going through so much, men and women going through so much. But to be able to have this, I mean, it was really the stories that they told last night was really impactful. It is, and, and when you get to know them on a personal level you realize that warrior hockey is as much a support group as it is hockey probably more so and I have several friends that are in Philly that are with the Vegas team and obviously everyone in St. Louis but they will all tell you that this is about saving lives Mm -hmm. you know our our veterans come home and and so many of them um, just frankly have a, a tough time finding the next step in life and this gives them that same bond that they had while they were serving and um, just some amazing people man I'm glad again I'm really glad that you guys had them on last definitely final question that I've got for you on this how did you get involved what what was the the connection obviously being from here and being an NHL player I I get that connection but how specifically did you get involved within this well uh, kind of by happenstance I was working for the Vegas Golden Knights and I was in Vegas and they were having a warrior classic out there and the Philly team was there and Brad Marsh runs that club, ex-NHL player, uh, and Marsh came down and said, hey, Mike, can you come say hi to the guys? You know, Because I had played for the Flyers the previous year. And mm-hmm. so, okay, sure, come down, say hi, and watched a game. And thought, man, this is really cool. And I talked to a friend of mine named Nathan Laup, who is – we've known each other since kindergarten, and one of my oldest friends. He was also a goaltender, and Nathan went into the Marines after high school, and he's very – he's come out, and he's, you know – been successful afterwards and Nathan saw the social post and he's like this is it you know this is what we need to do and another friend of mine Steve Haina uh him and Nathan really got the ball rolling here and so I connected him to Brad Marsh and then Nathan got in touch with the blues with the blues with went through Bruce Affleck and then on through other people that helped out a ton Rob Ramage gets involved I mean it's just it's amazing how it kind of grew from just that one chance meeting with the Warriors in Vegas to migrating into St. Louis mm-hmm. and now getting to be a part of it. I come out every Tuesday and coach the goaltenders. That's and, awesome, man. Yeah, at these tournaments, I hop behind the bench and try to 
do my best Ken Hitchcock. Goaltending coach. Yell at him as much. Goaltending head coach Mike McKenna. And, and again, these this tournament's going on all weekend, so you can get out here to Centene and it's free. So basically, you just come out and you pop in and you can catch these these games. I'm going to stick around and watch one a little bit later on this afternoon. So, Mike, uh, let's get back into last night as Ville Husso puts on a show. And we've talked so much about him, Jordan Bennington, confidence, whatever it may be. But how much is this goaltending, the situation that we're seeing right now, how much is it the play in front of the goaltending? There's an aspect to that for sure. For whatever reason, the Blues have been a little bit tighter in front of Vili Husso. And the numbers don't correlate to just the team, okay? Husso has performed at an incredible rate, honestly. Like, I mean, his safe percentage speaks for itself. He's been incredibly tight. He hasn't had many holes. But, you know, you watch last night's game, and he got some help, too. You know, some yes. bounces, some posts. Like, sometimes you go through these phases during a season where it, everything just hits you. And it's like you got this aura where the puck just can't, like, find you. You feel like, invincible. I'm telling you, it's like Chappelle's show when, like, <laughs> when, when uh, you know, Rick James walks in the room and Charlie Murphy goes, I've seen his aura. Like, that's, that's Doves kind flying. Of, yeah, that's kind of what it, it turns into. And, I mean, I talk, we talked about this last time. I think Jordan Bennington's going to be absolutely fine. I think he's faced such a hard workload that it kind of has caught up to him for a bit. I, when I watch him, I think he's been pressing a little bit. And I have full confidence that he'll get right back to where he needs to be. The Blues are so lucky that they have one of the best goalie coaches in the world and Dave Alexander. Mm -hmm. And you always rely on that. We're halfway through a season. You hit a five or ten game stretch that aren't the greatest. And when you're facing that difficult of a workload like Jordan Bennington, like how are you going to get confidence out of a game like the one he played in Calgary when your teammates are pylons? Like (laughs) that was the worst defensive game I've seen the Blues play all year. Yeah. So – I think they'll be good, man. I, I think it's a good thing for the Blues to have two goaltenders that can play. It's excellent. And right Three now. Even. We got Chucky Sideburns. Yeah, four. Right? Like, Gillies yeah, was good sure. for them for a while well, as well. Gillies on, the, on New Jersey I understand. Now. He's, but not it, a, he's not a blue anymore, VK. <laughs> he, he, he was, though, and he was outstanding for them when he was here. I, I am curious, if you were in charge right now and you, you were trying to lay out the schedule for when you do get back from this break, and we've still got one more before that time, but just to kind of project forward a bit, what do you do? Because Huso has been so great and you don't want, you're not just going completely away from Bennington. You need him to be able to get back out there because you got to get his confidence back at some point. But you start out and you got a couple of games at home with Chicago and New Jersey and Huso has been so great at home. Do you go with him for those first two? Do you go one for Huso, one for Bennington? How, how do you think you set this up to be able to prepare yourself for this second half whenever things do return? So there's a couple ways to go about this. You can go through Coach Craig Berube's eyes, or you could go through my eyes. Sure. <laughs> okay, and, and if you're the head coach, you want to win. And I think that right now, especially in the past several weeks, it's very much been, hey, Villy's winning games, so we're going to play him. Because the way the point standings are, you, you don't want to lose ground. Especially in this division in right this, now. In the Central, it, it is. It's tight. You know, I mean, Minnesota should be – they're going to be coming on strong. They've got games in hand, yeah. you know. And, I mean, Colorado – nobody's – It's anybody's ridiculous Colorado. what Colorado is doing. 17 straight home wins in yeah. a row. Like, are you kidding me? But I think it's tight between Nashville, Colorado – or Nashville and Minnesota and St. Louis. And so you're still – you're trying to jockey for that best spot. But I, I truly believe that both of them should be playing pretty equal minutes. I think. I really do. Because I, I – when you have somebody that's won a Stanley Cup as a starting goaltender and carried the mail like a Jordan Bennington, that's in your back pocket. That's a, that's a lock. This is a guy that you know. And I know his playoff performances haven't been great since then. I get that, but it's still there. 
And when you go with Ville Husso, yes, he's playing phenomenal, but there will be a, a regression at some point, and you just don't know. It's the great unknown in playoffs. So to me at this stage, coming out of the All-Star break, you're going to have time to practice a bit more, a little lighter schedule. In my eyes, I would play them both pretty evenly, unless things just keep, keep going off the rails. Right. You know, like if, if it becomes jarringly obvious that one goalie needs to play more, sure. But I'd like to see them both go. Mike, you mentioned David Alexander, and I'm interested in the dynamic of a coaching staff because you've seen a ton of coaching staff in your hockey career. What the Blues have, I mean, Craig Berube, it's very wide known how strong of a head coach he is, but to have Steve Ott and to have Mike Van Ryn and to have David Alexander, all of these guys who have had success elsewhere, what does that mean to a group when you have those guys in your locker room? I like the diversity of the Blues coaching staff. You know, Craig Berube old school guy, hockey lifer, you know, like <laughs> tough dude who just runs to run him out. And Stares run. at you and you want to just yeah. go hide in the corner. And, and that is and that is completely selling Craig Berube short. Okay, this is a bright hockey mind who knows how to get the best out of his players. It's not just the fact that he was a tough guy and he's going to scare people. That is not how this works. He is a bright hockey mind. And I love, though, that he's supported by two guys in Mike Van Ryan and Steve Ott who – are, were different stages of their career when they began coaching. Right? Yeah. Mike Van Ryan's career ended way early. And so he ended up doing coaching and progressed and had been a head coach and has that experience. I played against him in the Calder Cup playoffs in the American Hockey League when he was the coach of the Tucson Roadrunners. Yeah. Uh, and they were successful under him. And so this is somebody who's got a, tr- a, a career arc to a head coach eventually. And then you've got Steve Ott who bridges that gap to the players. Some of those guys still were in the loot room with them, right? Yeah. And like, we're talking about a legendary chirper and carver on the ice, oh, yeah. man. Like, big time. But you have a person that you know that you can, you can still trust that they understand and know what that's like to play in the modern NHL. So that's a great dynamic among your coaching staff on the bench. And then you factor in David Alexander, who you said, a goalie coach, mm-hmm. who to me has always been at the forefront of – progressive goaltending and analyzing what's going on, not just trends, but being able to project forward into what a team may do against you. Yeah. The pre-scout that Dave Alexander does to prepare his goaltender, to prepare his team, is phenomenal. I did a podcast where I recorded with Ray Barilli, the Blues athletic trainer, a couple of years ago after they won the Stanley Cup, and Ray said that an unknown fact about that run is that after Mike Yo was relieved of his duties and Craig Berube came in, Dave Alexander had a presentation on how to score goals that hadn't been allowed by Mike Yo. Really? Interesting. And Craig Berube said, have at it, Hoss. And he showed it to the team, and then they started to score goals. And, wow. well, I thought that that was unbelievable, that out of an interview with the, you know, with the athletic trainer, I get a, a nugget like that, that, hey, this is where goalie coaches have more value than just the goalies in the nets. Yeah. They can help your team learn how to score. And that's where, I mean, Dave Alexander, he is one of the best. He is premier and phenomenal at what he does. I worked with him in Syracuse. I was very lucky to do to have that. We had success, and um, I think the Blues are really fortunate to have him. It's interesting because when I think of, like, you got the NFL playoffs this weekend, Kyle Shanahan, the, the head coach for the 49ers, he's talked in the past about, you know, when his career took off, it wasn't when he became this, like, brilliant offensive mind. It was actually he learned the defensive rules. He learned the defense's rules, and then now he's able to exploit those 
with what he's going to come up with offensively, right? And so now we view him as being this brilliant offensive mind who's one of the best schemers in the league, and it all dates back to him working more with the defensive side of the ball than it is with what he did offensively. So it makes sense that as a goalie, it's almost like the hacker who then turns to the other (laughs) side, right? I know all the tricks of the trade, so I can tell you what you need to be doing here to be able to break those tricks of the trade. So it's, it's interesting to see that perspective of it, I would have to imagine, if you're a goal scorer as well. So let's take that now and riff on it to how Jordan Cairo and Robert Thomas yeah. are reaching the pinnacle of their careers. Very true. Because as you get older in the NHL and you start to realize that you have to play as hard and smart defensively to get the puck and have it on your stick. And you have to ha- control it and possess it and be smart. And those two players now, to me, are better 200-foot players than they've ever been. They are harder on the puck. They know when to win those battles. And, like, remember, you got credit to you. You asked me who's the breakout player this year for the Blues at the beginning of the season. I, after I practiced with the team at, like, Halloween. And then you got scored on them. Who'd you notice out there? And I said, I think Jordan Kyrou's ready for a breakout season. I couldn't stop him. He's, you guys are making me look good. You're, you're our inside eyes and ears, Mike. We need you to go be that goalie man, for them every once in a like, while. Look at his patience last night. Yeah. Unbelievable, and, and, you man. Know, he's, and that's what happens when you gain the confidence in the National Hockey League. Yeah. To, to not just drive the net and put it on net, but to have the patience and the presence of mind to say, I've got an extra three feet to take this puck that I'm going to be able to pull Markstrom out of his net and I'm going to have a layup. Yeah. Pretty impressive how Kairu's able to score in different ways. And, and Kairu can't do that unless you have the centerman who can make that pass to you. And Very that's true. the other element with this. Like, Robert Thomas, I don't know if people are noticing how how he's able to do those, those quick turnaround plays to take a defender off of him but open up space mm-hmm. in so much time that he can make that move with Kairu. I'm going back to that game against... I think it was Toronto or Nashville where Thomas goes behind the net or Kyra goes behind the net and without even looking he knows where Robert Thomas is at those two have a connection that I don't think people are actually understanding how good they are together yes and and a lot of this relates to them being the the prototypical modern hockey player that's received all of this training with small areas and, and skill development. Yeah. And, and this is really where the game's going. These players spend so much time before and after practice working on cutbacks, working <laughs> on their edges, working on passing pucks over and around things. We didn't do that 15 <laughs> years ago. You went out, you float around, you got off the ice, <laughs> got in the hot tub, you went home. Like, that's how it worked. And when you see that, like, Robert Thomas, he'll filter a pass between a skate and a stick, no problem. Don't yeah. phase him. Like, that used to be reserved for the, like the super elite players in the NHL. And and these guys, don't get me wrong, they are top-end players in the league. But you're not looking to Robert Thomas as being Crosby. Well, he's doing Crosby-like things. There's more players that do that. And it's from that training. But that connection, like you say, I know exactly the goal you're talking about. Yeah. They don't even need to, They just know where each other are on the ice. And it also shows they communicate. They talk to one yes. another. The other thing that is so impressive to me, Mike, I mean, you, you look at it right now. Vladimir Tarasenko has not scored a goal in his last six games. I wouldn't have even noticed that until last night. I looked it up. I was like, Vlad, Vlad he hasn't scored of late. What, what's going on here? No goals in his last six games. Four shots total in his last four games. He's basically been a, a nothing burger for you <laughs> when it comes to goal production in his last six. Brandon Saad prior to last night, one goal in his last ten games. <laughs> Ivan Barbashev, two goals against the Predators. Amazing game for him there. Otherwise, he has zero goals in the other eight games yep, previously. But the last time we talked poorly about Brandon Saad of how he not passing the puck, he got five assists in five games. <laughs> and, and I'm not even saying this to to say that, like to 
to me demean any of these players. It's amazing to me that we are not talking about the Blues being in a horrible right. goal drought right no. now it's when three of the top five goal scorers for you this year are going through a bit of a dry I mean, spell even, prior to last night. Even David Perron's getting back on track, right? Yes. That's, this is where depth comes into play, guys, and where you really have to develop from within because Thomas and Kyrie, they're homegrown talents. They're on great contracts for the team now. Like You need these types of players to fill in. You want to look at a team that doesn't have depth like the Blues? Look at the Philadelphia Flyers who've lost 13 straight games. They haven't developed enough talent from within to take this next step. They've had some okay talent, but not great talent. And, you know, do your top-end players play okay? If Giroux or Atkinson doesn't score for the Flyers, they don't win. Well, if if O'Reilly doesn't score for the Blues or Saad doesn't score for the Blues – they're okay. <laughs> and the and a lot of this that drives it is how clean they exit the zone and because they have mobile defensemen. I mean, Justin Falk was all over the ice last night, up and down, in involved on the rush, Krug the same way. Like when you have D that can skate the puck and get it to your forwards, that lets you drive play. That lets you score goals. And that's I mean, to me, like that's everything for the Blues. All the top teams in the league, they have D that can move the puck. This is the final one for me, Mike. And Jamie Rivers said something last night that I thought was fascinating, and I'm curious your thoughts. So many people, they identify with Blues teams as that blue-collar, rough-and-tumble, four-check, pin you against the board, beat you up, like we saw when they went on that cup run. And Jamie said, I think people are going to start to have to come to terms with that's not how this Blues team is going to win a championship. Because they have the skill, they have the talent, they have the speed. Defensively, so many people talk about how, oh, well, they don't have the Petrangelos or the Edmondsons or the Prongers. Mm -hmm. But what they don't understand is they have the Falks and the Krugs that when the puck is on their stick, I mean, Falk basically turned a penalty kill into a breakaway for himself last night. I think if people can start to get on board with the fact that this is a different identity team that still plays a Craig Berube type of system, but they can be effective elsewhere, I think people are start going to uh, begin to start being fascinated by what this Blues team can do. There is a shift in mindset there because Riv is, Riv's is spot on with this, that the identity is different, but it's also within the context of playing hard. Yes. You know, and the NHL has really shifted in the last three or four years, and it's been a continual process, but... The level of skill, the level of speed in today's game, the north-south game, the active defenseman, that's where it's gone. And I think Doug Armstrong's done a great job. I mean, getting Falk and Krug, like, I know Falk's first year here was like, dude, what's going on? Like, he he didn't People were ready to riot. I I mean, like, straight up, he didn't fit in the lineup at that point. He just didn't fit. But, like, Petrangelo goes, and now you see why and where he works, okay, because he's been awesome ever since. Yes. And you can play a fast, up-tempo game in this league, and you can be good, but you're not going to win if you don't play with an edge. Mm-hmm. Like, you still have to win board battles, and you have to be hard on pucks. It is just a different context. It's not going out and putting somebody through the end boards. Yeah. It's not going out and punching a guy in the nose right <laughs> off the face-off, right? Like, that's just – that's not what it is any longer. Right. And you, you, do you have to come to terms with it? Yes. But would you embrace it? And when you see what they have built from a talent perspective in the modern game – they have a lot of players that buy in and play hard most nights, and it's all driven from your leadership. Ryan O'Reilly, you talk to anybody in the league, they look at him as somebody who plays the game hard the right way, that they emulate. They want to play like him. That resonates within a locker room. The other thing that I wanted to, to talk to you about is what Craig Berube's piece is in that, because if you would have told me, 
two, three years ago that this would be a Craig Berube team, I'd have been like, I'm not sure that that's the style <laughs> that Craig Berube is really going to be in charge of. When are we trading for Ryan Reeves? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's true. And then the, the number of young guys that he has developed here in St. Louis, I think that's a piece of this as well. And you mentioned how they've developed so many players. I mean, it's... It's kind of funny because his hard exterior would tell you one thing about who he is as a coach. And then you actually kind of dive into what they've done as a team with their identity, who they are right now as a team. And B, the young guys and the way that he's handled Nico Mikola through some tough times this year. Scott Perunovic through some tough times this year. Jordan Cairo, Robert Thomas, when they were going through some of their struggles in past years. I mean, he's like the model coach for the modern game. And yet, if I just heard like a press conference or watched his demeanor sometimes, I'm like, "Ooh, I don't know how that's going to fit in the modern game. And yet he's perfect for this team. It, it's kind of it, it is really interesting to me, that dynamic. What it really relates to is accountability and honesty and and being direct. Like that's how Craig Berube coaches. He doesn't leave anything on the table. I, I, I've talked to players that have played for him currently in the past, and they all say, man, he holds us accountable, and we know where we stand, and we believe in him, and we respect him. And, and I'll say this in all fairness to the coach that I'm going to mention here, that it's a very different dynamic with the Calgary Flames. Yes. The players are terrified of Daryl Sutter, okay? It's I'm terrified like of Daryl Sutter. I, listen – I would not want to be on the ranch with him handling cattle. Oh, God, Because no. I think I'd really be in trouble. Isn't the <laughs> dynamic amazing? Because Brian Sutter is like one of the nicest human beings you'd ever look at. Doesn't intimidate you at all. Now, he could destroy you, but Daryl Sutter, you look at and you want to cower in a corner. Yeah. So that's where, like, a Daryl Sutter team in the playoffs makes me nervous. Yes. Because they play defense so well in most, most cases, okay? Um, but I always kind of question that factor of, What's the tipping point until the players give up on him? Because it happens. And it, hap- it happens to every coach eventually. Mm-hmm. But sometimes it's just a matter of co- players just they stop listening. Right. Sometimes they just get sick of a guy. Yep. Like, players get sick of Sutter. Players got sick of Hitchcock. Like, that's how it works. You know? And with Barube, I don't see that. I see somebody that the players respect. They know where they stand. And they appreciate the fact that he has been through those battles. And you can't talk back to a guy like that. You <laughs> can't. To that. Rick Tockett's got that same effect. Yes. You know? He is Mike McKenna, one of the best in the business. This has been outstanding. We did get a text, uh, by the way, 65780 is the Air Comfort Service text line. Uh, former service member said he'd like to get more information about potentially playing for the Warriors teams. Where can people go if they're interested in whether it be just going to one of your games, supporting the team, coming out as fans, maybe making some signs for the guys, or if it's somebody who's listening right now that would like to actually sign up, where can they find more information on that? So St. Louis Blues Warriors, and I don't have the, the website memorized, but Google works really well. So if you, if you put Google in works Saint Louis very Blues well. Warriors, uh, whether Facebook, whether their website, it will all drive traffic towards where to sign up uh, and who to speak with to do so. And like I say, it, it is a big support group. And uh, any veteran that's interested, please by all means reach out. I'm not a veteran, but I tell you what, being around these people means a lot to yeah. me. And 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 I know it goes both ways. We love being around one another. So totally looks yeah. like it's STL Blues Warrior Hockey. 
stlblueswarriorhockey.com. You can get the information over there. Uh, Mike, this has been awesome, man. Yeah. Thanks so much for spending so much time with us this morning. We appreciate it as always. Enjoy the tournament this week. Best of luck to your guys, and we'll talk with you again soon, man. Thank you. You guys see the smile on my face. <laughs> I know. I love this stuff. Believe it's me. Like, we could have done this for another three hours oh, with yeah, you. But, is. you know, commercials and stuff. <laughs> Got to pay the bills. <laughs> He's Mike McKenna, former <laughs> NHL goalie. Coming up next, we're going to get back to the Blues. want to continue talking about that depth of scoring and what does this mean for the Blues in the future? We'll talk about all of that coming up here on BK and Ferrario on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the BK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. With Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendricks, and I'm Brandon Kylie. We are live at the E&B Granite Studio out of the Centene Community Ice Center. Huge thanks to Mike McKenna. Hung yeah. around for a couple of segments with us. He was outstanding. If you missed any of that, be sure to check it out on the podcast page, 101ESPN.com, the free 101 ESPN app. It's all presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers. Alex, the thing that we talked about there at the very end with him, other than Craig Berube, was the depth of scoring that this team has right now. And I know you tweeted about this last night the blues have what seven guys that have scored double digit goals so far this year Yeah, nashville has seven guys and florida has eight guys and they're right up at or near the top of the list right now when it comes to the teams that you trust the most number of players to score consistently on and i mentioned this in our conversation with mike mckenna but man i was just i was really surprised last night as i was kind of going through some of the game logs to see ivan barbashev has in his last eight games seven of them he has zero goals in Vladimir Tarasenko's last six games, zero goals combined. Brandon Saad, prior to last night, had one goal in his last 10 games. Those are three of your top five goal scorers this season, and yet they're all going through a dry spell or something resembling a dry spell at the same time. Alex, it hasn't hurt them. They were 4-2 and two in those six games where you're getting basically nothing from Barbie, Tarasenko, and Saad, and it didn't matter. Because you still have Cairo, you've got O'Reilly, you've got Shin, who's been playing really well of late. Last night, I thought was arguably David Perron's best game of the season. I know he didn't score, but he was a guy that was all over the ice and made his presence felt. When you have this kind of depth of scoring, Buchnevich, who I didn't even mention, Alex, it's what the Cardinals have been waiting for for years, where it's like, okay, right now, if you've got Arenado or Goldie going through a little bit of a dry spell, you don't really have the depth to be able to come, uh, make up for that. Meanwhile, for the Blues, it's seemingly a different guy every night. And you'll get some hot streaks where Barbie's going really hot for a period of time. Then he cools down. You've got Ryan O'Reilly playing his best game. He cools down a little bit. Now you've got Braden Shin playing his best hockey of the season. He's going to eventually cool down. And then maybe it does get back to Vladimir Tarasenko going on a little bit of a heater. This is what they've been looking for. And it's what's so different between this team and the Stanley Cup team where uh, they did during the regular season at least have a couple of lines that really carried them offensively. This is about as deep as you could possibly see any hockey team with the way that they've got their forward lines rolling right now. I'm 100% with you, and if, T-Bone, if you have this audio, if we can go back to what Kevin Weeks told the fast lane last night, and this is why I agree with what he said. The Blues are a squad. Like, I, I don't say this lightly. I might like their team when they're at their best right now, maybe even more than their cup team. That's exactly what, what it is. They... This they're a team, squad. They're a squad. This team is better than that cup team, and this is why you can't compare 
each of them. You can compare what they do in the regular season because it's kind of a measuring stick because you want to be a Stanley Cup team, and that was a Stanley Cup team. But they're different in the sense of that season and the last and the couple of seasons following their Stanley Cup championship. The Blues, if their top guys had an off night, then you knew that it was going to be a rough go and you had to have players step up. It's what you talked about with the Cardinals. But the problem was that gets exhausting if you're those top guys. Like if you're Ryan O'Reilly and you know you have to be on every single night, you can't have an off night because when you do, you are going to lose. That gets exhausting and that's where you get those dry spells and that's where confidence comes into play. And if Sanford and Blay and those players aren't stepping up, well then you got a problem. That's not an issue right now. And we talked the first line, the second line, the third line. Oh, why, why is Braden Shed on the third line? He's a, he's a, six, he's a top six forward. That, that is the best case scenario for this Blues team to where not one line knows or one player knows that they have to be their best. Like date, last season, if David Perron's not on, they don't make the playoffs. David Perron was the holy grail of that team last season. This season, he's going through a streak. You want him to get better. But you don't need him to. You don't put the pressure on David Perron. So that's why I like this team better, like Kevin Weeks does, than that Stanley Cup team, because you needed Tarasenko and O'Reilly and Schwartz and those guys to turn it on. You don't need two, three guys to be at their best this season. You just need everyone to be as engaged in the game as possible because you know even if a guy's having a bad night, there is going to be offense created. There are going to be pucks directed towards the net, and all you need to do is go in front of it because you're going to get those opportunities. Look at Brandon Saad last night. His first goal, he's just floating around in front of, or his second goal, floating around in front of the net, and all of that happens because Braden Shen and David Perron are working from behind the net forechecking. Like, that's why this team is set up better than that team. Yeah, I mean, you, you look back over the last few years and you try to find anything even resembling what we're watching right now, and it just doesn't really exist. The last time that the Blues had four, Alex, four players score at least 20 goals in an individual season was 2015, and that was Vladimir Tarasenko, Jaden Schwartz, David Backus, and Alex Steen that year. You're on pace right now for seven that year you had four, and that's the last. That's how far back you have to go for something even resembling this team, and it's basically half wow. of what you're going to have potentially this year. The pace is just different, and Mike McKenna mentioned this, and it's a great point. This is not the same style of team that we talked about when they made their Stanley Cup run, but that's okay. They don't need to win it the same way that they did the last time around, and it's, again, going back to the Cardinals comparison, it's the same thing that we talk about with the Cardinals. They don't have to win another World Series the same way that they did in two 2011 or 2006 they don't have to recreate the mv3 you've just got to find the current best way to win a world series for the cardinals or a stanley cup for the blues and the best way for this team to do it is by coming together as a depth of scoring unit and then just getting enough defense and good enough goaltending that team in 2019 was predicated on suffocating defense outstanding goaltending and just enough offense yeah this year, it's going to be unbelievable offense, pretty darn good defense at times, solid goaltending, and you're able to ride that through the postseason because you have just more than everybody else. There is no time, like Alex, for example, when you go up against the uh, the Colorado Avalanche, we talk about that one line that you've got to shut down, right? Yeah. Against the Blues, what's the line you're shutting down? 
I don't know. There's not a line. Like if you've got a shutdown pairing defensively, who do you send them out against? Is it Thomas and Cairo? I I guess. But if you do that, what are you doing the other two or three lines that the Blues have that can score on you at any point over the course of the game? That's what's exhausting, man. It's just there is never a time where they let up, seemingly. So when you're going up against the Flames like they did last night and you've got Brandon Saad and Braden Shin and David Perron looking like your best line, Oh, buddy, that's exhausting for the other team. Well, and we're getting a lot of texts on the Air Comfort Service text line 65780. Oh, this offense may be better, but this defense is tremendously worse. You know what? That may be. But there's a difference when you look at the numbers of that 2018-2019 season because the Blues were backs against the wall. And when your backs are against the wall, you cannot make a mistake in a hockey game. And again, their offense wasn't in – There was their, their team – mentality offensively wasn't the same as the St. Louis Blues right now. And what I mean by that is what Tory Krug said a couple of days ago. Their defense is created by their offense. Their defensemen jump up into the rush. They jump up into the play. Nico Meekla got another assist last night. Like, Tory Krug is three or two goals away from having ten goals on the yeah. season. This this team doesn't play the stingy, don't come into my zone defense like they used to do. They play the, we're going to beat you with speed and talent in the neutral zone. If we turn the puck over, yeah, we're probably going to have to get back on an odd man rush. That's where our goaltender comes into play. But guess what? If we don't mess that pass up, we are going to be off to the races, three on two, and you're going to have to find a way to eliminate the offense that is going to wear you down. And guess what? Our power play, that's third best in the National Hockey League, you make a mistake, we're going to make you pay there. There are so many more different elements that have improved on this team that you can't just say, well, the defense is worse than what it was then. Defense is important, but their defense is tremendously differently built than what it was back in that 18-19 season. I want to continue on that defense with Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson. I'm Brandon Kiley. Coming up next, what did you see from Pareko and Mikola last night, Alex? Because I want to get your thoughts on them and... The Mikola conversation I want to expand on a bit because the way that Craig Berube handled him coming off of that really disastrous performance in the last game against Calgary, I think led to what we saw last night. We'll explain it next on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. With Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kiley. It's BK and Ferrario on 101 ESPN. Derek Gould, the Cardinals beat writer for the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, joining the show coming up in about 10 minutes or so. I could go an hour and a half with Derek Gould. Alex, I know that you won't allow me to do that, but I've got so many. I could go an hour and a half with him, too. We'll talk hockey. I've got so many questions for Derek, so we'll get into that coming up here in about 10 minutes or so. But last night, Alex, I did want to get your thoughts on Colton Pareko and Nico Mikula because they had a really rough go of it. Uh, in the last one against the Calgary Flames. And last night, I I thought they looked good to the untrained eye, but what did you see from those two in particular? I I thought they looked great as well. Um, I I thought that they both looked engaged. They were fast with the puck movement, but more so than anything, they were very... They were very particular in how they were moving the puck, if that makes sense. But what about Mikola's minus one? Okay, so we're going to go that the, route. The on-ice rating for him, the, well, min- the let, minus one. Let me, I know you've got thoughts on this. Let me take, let me take you back. <laughs> 
Let me take you back to uh, yesterday. We'll go back to the future here, BK, where you said that uh, they should platoon them a little bit more and not use them in the offense or not use them in the defensive zone and put them in the offensive zone a little bit more. Well, they played in the defensive zone last night, and being a minus one when there was only one goal scored and five goals scored against meant they weren't used in the offensive zone. But guess what? There was only one goal scored, and in their sense, that was what we talked about yesterday where the Blues play a style where the puck goes out of their own zone into the neutral zone and if it gets turned over, then you're going to have two defensemen that are backtracking because they, they play quick, and that's what happened on that play. So I hope that makes you feel better about that minus one there. I, I, I was totally kidding. I, I, know, I know, by the were. way, I think it was, was it Mikola who ended up, yeah, he, he was a, a minus one, but he was not technically on the ice for the goal that was scored even though he got the assist on the goal that was scored. So it is a little fluky. Like, that's why plus minus can be a little bit wonky every once picture. in a while. Number one stat I look at, plus it's minus. A, it's, a, it's a team stat. It's like peak zips. Nobody cares. I, I just find that's it interesting. A team stat. He had an assist on a goal that was scored when he was not on the ice and therefore was a minus one well, in the game. But get, getting back to what yes. you were saying, they, they did look good last night. And what what does that mean for that pairing after what they showed against uh, the Calgary Flames in the last I think one. it just means that you're growing. I think it means that they're still building from what they need to. If any, if you're going to take anything away from that game, it's the fact that they responded to that performance. Because, look, if a team like that goes through a bad game where you're a minus five, like you would expect the confidence to be dropped pretty quickly. But it really wasn't. And I loved what Mike Van Ryan said last night after the Blues game. He talked with Curbs and Joey, and Joey asked him, like, hey, what went into Mikula and getting him back on the ice? Because remember, Jake Wallman's a healthy scratch. He could have played last night in place of Nico Mikula, but they trusted him. Here's what Mike Van Ryan said. We believe in him, and those games happen, you know, especially when you're a young player. I remember being minus five and here with Chris Pronger against Philly one game, so... It, it happens. Uh, you know, I talked to him. Al McGinnis talked to him. You know, we told him on the bench that that stuff just happens. You know, it, we don't, it's not like we don't believe in him. Um, you know, we just didn't want him to go minus six in that game. So, uh, real good response tonight. I thought they did a great job on that line. Him and Colton. Colton played really well again. Um, so, yeah, no, we were happy for him. And, uh, no, just the growth keeps happening. They're taking care of the player. And, and- it's one thing to have a Mike Van Ryan talking to you who played with a Chris Pronger. It's another to have the Hall of Famer Al McKennis come down to you and talk to you, and that's the luxury this Blues team has. So for me, I thought it was really important for Mikula to have a good game, and there's no coincidence they matched up against that number one line again, and that number one line of Kachuk, Goudreau, and Lindholm did not score a point, and that was because Mikula and Pareko were able to eliminate that rush from those two and that's where they're great the thing that I love about this blues coaching staff is that or this this blues team is that they have the coaching staff in place that is almost like an incubator for young players Mm -hmm. and what I mean by that is Craig Berube I, I do think the way that he was able to get his career back on the on the trajectory that we now see it is by going down to the AHL and becoming a better coach for young players like that's such a huge piece to being a top-tier coach in the NHL right now. You've got to be a player development guy as much as you are an in-game strategy guy. And, Alex, you look at the NFL and you look at some of the best teams in the league right now, and what is it that they're doing? They're maximizing their young quarterbacks, right? You look to to Buffalo with 
uh, what they've got with McDermott there and Brian Dable. They had everything in place offensively. They've got Ken Dorsey as their quarterback's coach right now. They've got everything in place offensively with their staff to make sure they were able to both draft and then develop the right guy at quarterback. And you see what's happened with Josh Allen. They put the pieces around him to be able to make sure that he's successful. The same thing is true with the Blues player development process right now. You look at what they've got. Ivan Barbashev has had a breakout season this year because of the way that the Blues have developed him. He came up. He had a specific role. He was able to thrive within that role. He got more opportunities as you continued on. And now he's a legit top six forward, which I did not see coming. Jordan Kyrou came up had his questionable decisions in terms of what he was doing on the ice. There were too many turnovers. He wasn't responsible enough defensively. There was a fork in the road that happened within his career. I remember talking about it with you and Jamie two years ago when we were on this show, and it was a question of, okay, it's time for you to prove, Jordan Kyrou, that you could be the player that people thought you were going to be when you were in the AHL, and guess what? Who boy, has he become everything anybody could have hoped that he would be and then some. They did it with Oscar Sundquist. They've done it with Robert Thomas. Nico Mikola is going through this process right now. Ville Husso in net is going through this process. They did it with Jordan Bennington. Man, I can't imagine there are many other teams that have the drafting and developing processes in place that the Blues have right now where they've had this kind of success with this many key components to what could be a legit Stanley Cup contending team That is such a big piece to what they are doing both offensively and just as a team as a whole right now. And that is a credit to Craig Berube. It is a credit, as you mentioned, to Mike Van Ryan and the entire assistant coaching staff and also the other guys just within the structure of the organization. Having Al McKinnis as a sounding board, are you kidding me? Having Brett Hall to call up and talk to? Keith Kachuk. Like the, the, that's the other piece of this Blues alumni base that yeah. stays around here in St. Louis. Like Chris Pronger just being around the ice for guys well, to be course, able to call. Well, of course, former superstar NHL defenseman Jamie Rivers. All of these guys, Thanks. having them <laughs> whenever you need them in yeah. a moment's notice is such a huge piece to what this Blues team is doing. And that's not even beginning to get to the place that Robert Thomas you want some sort of a mentor well how about Ryan O'Reilly who's maybe the best one in the league you look on the back end hey you're having a tough time tough go of it right now Nico Mikola I bet you it'd be pretty good to talk to a guy like Justin Falk who went through some tough times here in St. Louis when he first got here how do you get back on track how do you go from that to being one of the top guys in the league and plus minus that we mentioned earlier it's it's just such a great situation for young players to come up in and that is not the case in a lot of franchises around the league. It's really not. And all of those players are great examples, BK. And let's add in a couple of other guys. What about Colton Pareko? Pareko's best year defensively was the 2018-2019 season when Craig Berube took over. Let's talk about Justin Falk. Mike McKenna just said that he was not great his first season here. Year two, year three, he's one of their best defensemen on the ice. This team is so good at developing talent, and it's because you have the leadership in place, it's because you have the culture in place, and it's because you have Craig Berube. And if I could play one more cut for you, this was from our coaches show yesterday on pregame. Chris Kerber talking to Craig Berube about Mikola and the developing and how you handle the young players. Um, I think you just be consistent with them. You know, I think there, there's demands that uh, we have as coaches that have to be met by players, whether it's a young guy or an old guy. And I get young guys take a little bit more time and um, they're going to make more mistakes at times. And so it's important that uh, I think as coaches that you're all constantly just communicating with them, uh, whether it's on the bench during the play. 
That's the biggest thing for me here, and it's what I mentioned earlier. They had a healthy Jake Wallman that they could have thrown into the lineup and told Mikola, hey, take a seat, sit up top, watch the game. But he didn't. He put him right back in the lineup and said, you're going up against that. It's not like they paired him against the fourth line on Calgary. They paired him against the top line that scored like 16 points on him in that game. They they put their young players right back into position, and they put the confidence in them. They instill it to say, like, we know you're you're good. We You just need to go out there and prove it. And it's what they've done so many times. It's what he did with Robert Thomas in his rookie season. It's what they've done with Jordan Cairo. It's what they've done with Ivan Barbashev. It's what we've gone through. But for me, to have a coach that has that mindset of like, no, we just need to keep doing what they're doing and communicate with them and make them understand that they're a better player than what they did in that game, show them how to be better, and they go out and put it on the ice. That's where the growth comes from. 65780 is the Air Comfort Service tax line. We'll get to questions and answers coming up in about 15 minutes or so. We got this text from the 314. Guys, I feel like this coach is surprisingly sensitive, but like in a good way, though. Exactly. That's exactly what it is. 100%. They are very direct. They will tell you, they will give you the why as to what you're doing. They will tell you exactly what role they want you to be in, and they will continue to progress towards what your peak potential is within that role. So the the Blues are in a really good spot with Craig Berube as their head coach, and that's why they should re-sign him during this break. Coming up next, Derek Gould, the Cardinals beat writer for the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. I have a million different questions for him. We'll see how many we can get to with Derek Gould next. Next on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. With Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendricks and I'm Brandon Kylie. We are live at the E&B Granite Studio at the Centene Community Ice Center. And we are very happy to go out to the Brown and Crouppen Celebrity Line to be joined by the Cardinals beat writer for the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. He is Derek Gould joining us here on the show. Derek, we always enjoy having you on. Thank you so much for the time this morning. How are you doing, my friend? I'm all right. How are you guys? Uh, we're doing okay. So I have, I, I think, a list of a million different questions that I would love to get your thoughts on. Hope we you got two hours, Derek. Yeah, we, we won't get to each and every one of them <laughs> this morning, but I do have a few in particular uh, that I'm really curious to get your thoughts on. Let's start on the pitching side of things, if that's okay with you. Because last year, I remember one of the big conversations that was had was coming off of the pandemic-shortened season, how much is that going to play into this te- these teams' decision-making uh, with how they utilize their pitchers are they going to go shorter uh starts are we going to see more arms that are needed because of potential injuries what is this going to look like and then the answer was basically yes to all of the above now with this lockout and the potential for a shortened spring training Derek how do you think that is going to influence teams decision making whether that is going out and adding more arms once we open things back up from the lockout or having to go further into their depth in the minors how do you think teams are going to handle their pitching this year if it is a shortened spring training again they're going to get some latitude with a larger roster that's sort of what we understand you know would be one of the things in play would that the season would not start similar to 2020 right um that's sort of the roadmap because it's something that they've already agreed upon and that's a lot of what what we're working off of because that's what they're working off of is that july summer camp and that rosters would start larger so if they negotiate in the cba a return to the 26-man roster overall you're likely to see a season start with a 28 or 30 
and some allowances there for the makeup allowing um, or permitting more pitching, more pitching depth, um, you know, even a taxi squad there early on that players could move off of and on to, um, you know, a little bit more, let's say, free, um, at least be available than if they were in the minors. So that would be the, the way that teams would start is they would likely populate those extra spots with innings. Um, you're not going to see teams, you know, if, if they find a way to address the service time manipulation, then bully for them, then, then you could see the Cardinals start with like a Libertor um, there. But, you know, they don't need to put them on the roster. Uh, and, and there's no real, you know, if the CBA is just copied, then they wouldn't be moved to do so. But like an Angel Rondon, you would see in that mix, right? A guy like that who has starting experience, has innings, um, and could be used. The Cardinals are already, um, not to make a long answer longer, but the Cardinals are kind of already prepping their roster for that approach um, because they have guys who, they have a full rotation according to them after signing Steven Matz, and yet they have a handful of guys who they would like to see prepare as starters and used as starters in spring training to create some flexibility, whether they're used as an occasional sixth man starter or they're used as that guy who goes the third time through the lineup when the starter does not. And those pitchers, I mean, two of them, you know, well, cause they're the most recent closers and that's Alex Reyes and Jordan Hicks. And the other one is Jake Woodford, who is pretty much done with triple a actually he's done with triple a <laughs> and is now trying to carve out a role for him in the major leagues. And he has that, you know, it's kind of, I, I think I've called it in the past, the accordion reliever, one who can go long, short, do a lot of different things. Um, they're going to carry multiple guys like that so that it gives Marmol and Maddox some creativity in the middle innings um, where they can use a guy for multiple innings. He'll not be available the next day or the next two days, but the next guy will be. Um, it goes way back to what reminds me of sitting in Jupiter many, many years ago talking with Dave Duncan about what a team could do if it only had four starters that it trusted. Could it go with sort of a second-tier, shorter-term, three-guy rotation, sort of a shadow rotation? And that's kind of what they have in play in their roster. You know, Derek, we've talked with with a, a bunch of different national analysts, and everyone that we've talked to have said, like, the biggest need for the Cardinals still is a starting pitcher. Where do you think the Cardinals view starting pitcher, that next tier down the Oviedos, the Woodfords, the Reyes, the Hicks. Where do you think the Cardinals view those players as? You mean as, as like in their roles coming up? Correct. And are they ready? Think, well, I think they want Oviedo to get time in AAA. Um, he was pressed into duty. Um, that really kind of jarred his development a little bit. He would really benefit from at least getting a month, month and a half, two months of just ability to dominate and dictate whether he's going to be a starter in the majors or a really strong reliever. Um, Woodford is ready. Reyes, they've long been intrigued by. Um, Hicks is a little bit more of an experiment, um, more to do with the schedule of a starter than, say, the workload of a starter when you talk about Hicks in that role. Um, you know, I think they, you know, Libertor, they think is going to contribute at some point in time in the near future. Uh, you know, one of the reasons why I would imagine people say the Cardinals need starting is because of what happened to them last year where they capsized in June 
and needed to accumulate lots of starting and needed to get some lottery tickets, as you say, to perform for them. The other part of that is every team needs starting pitching. Um, the Cardinals right now, if you, they could obviously add a starter and be better for it, but to make them a lot more well-rounded club and a, and a, and really increase their chances of winning, they could make a move for a reliever and do that. I, I think that is kind of top of the shopping list for them um, because that's the move that would subtly enhance how they hold leads um, because they have this mix of middle relievers who can handle innings. It's interesting because we actually talked with Kevin Goldstein, the former Astros assistant GM who now writes for Fangraphs a couple of days ago, Derek, and he said the exact same thing. He's like, do the Cardinals need pitching? Yes, but so does every other team in baseball right now. So it's not like a, an urgent need that they need a starter necessarily so much as it is everybody could use an extra guy if you can find one. I did want to ask you about that re- relief option for them because I've seen you write, whether it be in your chat or just your reporting in general, uh, that they, they could potentially be connected to some of the top guys that are out there. A guy like Ryan Tapera is, is a really mm-hmm. interesting candidate for them. I, I am curious, do you think that they would be willing to go with that multi-year uh, bigger money reliever this time around? Because we've seen this in the past with them, whether it be Andrew Miller, uh, you go back to Brett Cecil, sometimes those have come back to burn the Cardinals, and they do have some really intriguing young arms that could project to be bullpen pieces, whether it be this year or in the future with a guy like uh, Walsh or Pacheco or Payante, uh, do you think they're willing to go that multi-year big money deal with a reliever this offseason? I don't think they have to, to be honest. Like, uh, I don't think you have to go a deal like you did with Miller or, um, you know, uh, Cecil. And I might be proven wrong, but I don't get that sense. And not certainly coming out of uh, lockout when there'll be a rush to sign guys, and there are so many relievers that are pretty similar. You mentioned Tapera. Tapera certainly stands out from the group, but you know if he's asking for three years and a whole wealth of money, then you could probably find somebody who could do the role slightly less than that. Um, it's a pretty thick pool of options. Um, it depends on sort of what you want to prioritize. If the Cardinals want to prioritize ground ball rates and not walking people like we've seen them do, um, then there are a handful of guys who fit that. Um, there's certainly a guy who maybe even will come on a minor league deal or, or somebody you could get towards the back end of, as that market moves, who fits that. And instead of signing one guy then to the major, mega, to what would account to a mega deal, um, you would sign, two guys and let them fight it out in spring training to to figure it out. I don't really get the sense that the Cardinals are going to go into that realm of trying to get a guy who say is a closer. Um, But even then there are a handful of guys available um, as free agents who have five to 30 saves in their career, slightly more who, you know, have also served in that setup role and aren't going to cost a whole lot as far as the commitment goes. Um, you know, I, I just don't, I don't think that that kind of Brett Cecil requirement is out there, um, for them. I think they, they're going to have options. They're going to fit into a shorter term, um, maybe similar AAV, but certainly a shorter term thing with far more upside. Just um, I think that's a, there for them. Apologies for cutting you off there, Derek. Is no, an okay. Alex Colomay the type of player, like just to put a name on the, on kind of the, the range of player that you're talking about, is that kind of the type of guy that could be of interest? No. Uh, I mean, you're talking about like, uh, like you have a Joe Kelly who's out there. You have him, let's say he's on the high end, right? Or maybe wants to be on the high end. 
and Ryan Tapere then slightly below him. Um, but you also have like a Colin McHugh, who is a versatile kind of swingman guy, could start, could set up, could do a lot of different things. So what kind of look does he get? Then you have, you know, sort of, you have Ian Kennedy, for example. Um, then on the lower end, you got a guy who, like uh, Archie Bradley, who has a ground ball rate, um, you know, in his career above average. Um, you have a guy like, uh, you know, from the left side, you got a, you know, a, a Jake Diekman is out there. Um, and there are also like trade candidates out there. You could, you know, sort them all by, by who's about to make some money. Um, you know, a guy on the lower end who was uh, let go by the Mets is Robert Selman, you know, a guy, a right-hander, um, you know, career ground ball rate, 48%. You know, last year he had what, you know, minimal innings, um, but not that much uh, a walk rate overall. And you can see him, you know, wanting to get like kind of a bounce back offer. Maybe he's off the roster and given a chance to compete Pat Neshek style and does. Derek, uh, on the hitting side of things for the Cardinals, uh, the one player that I am fascinated by this offseason is Nolan Gorman because mm-hmm. it seems like they're ready to, 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 to give him that next step at the major league level for what he has done these last couple of seasons. But it also feels like you wonder where he's going to fit in because it seems like they want more playing time than just a DH for him. Oh, I mean, there's there's plenty of playing time when you start moving guys around. Um, you know, I, I don't get the sense that they're like rushing to have him on that opening day roster. I think they're intrigued by what he could do, um, but they're not racing to replace um, Tommy Edmond, for example, and they're not racing to replace Paul DeYoung with Tommy Edmond at shortstop. Um, but, you know, Gorman's going to get a chance to make a ruckus in spring training. It, if it's a shortened spring training, it's really going to limit the kind of impression some of these young guys can make. Let's be honest, right? Like last year, Lars Newbar made the most of spring training because he was all over the place. Backfield games, playing great, hitting well. Um, things that you that weren't seen on the main stage, but uh, the group of us that were down there got to watch through train link fences and just <laughs> the consistency that he played, You know what he brought to his at-bats, what he brought against higher competition. Um, you know, he made a strong impression because there were games available to him in a compressed spring training, less games available to guys, more games and more at bats and more innings going to be committed to the people who the Cardinals think are going to be their 26, 28, 29 man roster to start the year. And so they're really not going to be a lot of time for a young guy to make a ruckus in spring. Not like there would be for him to make a ruckus in when the triple a season starts, um, and it's more likely that we'll see that. And then, you know, I, I mean, I think they see him as a guy who could play second base for them now. Um, they really want him to continue to invo- improve, um, gain the instincts. Um, he's got he's got a great arm, and that's a great equalizer at that position, as, you know, Skip Schumacher can show him now that Skip is back with, uh, you know, as the bench coach. Um, Skip made that transition from outfield to second base and really relied on his arm strength to help him. Um, at that position, you know, Mark Gridzelonic was an exceptional second baseman for the Cardinals um, because he was a good fielder, but also he had like the best arm on the end. Well, not the best arm because Scott Rowland was part of that infield, but he had the best arm of any second baseman in the National League. Um, and Gorman has a strong arm that's going to help him there, but he can also play third. He can also play first. He can spell guys. You can get Nolan Arenado. Um, when there's when there's a situation where you got a guy who doesn't get a whole lot of ground balls to the left side or a team that puts a lot of balls in the air or whatever, 
you know, maybe get Arnado that day off at third and put Gorman there. So there's plenty of, there are plenty of bats out there, just like there are plenty of bats out there for a fourth outfielder. There are plenty of bats out there for a fifth infielder. Um, if he can play multiple positions. Derek Gould is our guest for another couple of minutes here on 101 ESPN. Cardinals beat writer for the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. You can find his work online, stltoday.com. Also, give him a follow on Twitter, at dgould. Always appreciate him being willing to give us a little bit of time. Derek, kind of branching off of the Nolan Gorman conversation, I did want to ask you about how they view the designated hitter, and not just for this year, but also how you kind of put that in place for the future as well, because I think the guys that we probably received the most texts about from some of our mm-hmm. listeners early on in the offseason were Nick Castellanos and Kyle Schwarber as potential DH and potentially every so often you put them in the outfield options for this team. But if you're going that route, those are likely multi-year contracts that you're handing out, and that could clog up that designated hitter spot for you, whereas you do have potential options of guys like Peterson or Rosario or Nelson Cruz who would all potentially be one-year contracts for them. How do you Mm -hmm. think the Cardinals view that designated hitter spot if they were going to add a bat after things open back up? Do you think they would be interested in a multi-year deal for that spot? Um, I mean, they they really like the fact that they have Yepes from the right and Newt Barr from the left and Gorman rising and Walker after that. And they recognize that, you know, they're two franchise players right now for the future. Um, you know, you got franchise, I guess we're going to have to differentiate this all season, right? You have franchise icons, which are Wainwright and Molina. And then you have the franchise cornerstones, I guess, pun intended in Arenado and Goldschmidt. Um, you know, the, you got, first base if walker ends up there or say walker starts playing left field you know at some point in time you're going to have the dh be someplace for arnado and goldschmidt to be too um while not while you don't want to give up too much defense you put schwarber out in left field and where does does that buy a day for tyler o'neill does that compromise the defense um nick castellanos is a different guy the cardinals have had so many opportunities to go out and sign him, trade for him, and they just really haven't. Um, you know, has he changed? You know, his how he looks as a player going from, say, the Tigers to the Cubs to what he did with the Reds. Sure, you know, he's added more information. You know, I think he he, he plays all right defense. Um, you could probably you know see him as a better defensive player than maybe their first evaluations were. But is he going to supplant any of the three outfielders that they have out there? Um, not defensively, not not at all. So. Hey, you know, I don't know. It's it's a tough thing because it's not just the year commitments. It's the opt-outs. It's the dollars. It's all those things. And it's also just the perception that the or the reality that the Cardinals have had a chance to go sign those guys or add those guys before, and they haven't. So that ought to tell you something. For sure. Uh, Derek, final question for you. Uh, this is one of my biggest questions for the team going into 2022. I, I am so fascinated by a million different aspects of the Ollie Marmol hire, but maybe most interesting for us here in St. Louis, you know how the lineup card game goes for us. Um, who is going to lead off for this team? Like if you had to project on opening day right now, and of course this is a projection, things can change as you hear more information and you see what it looks like out at spring training, Derek. But as of today, who do you think will be lining up as your uh, as your leadoff hitter on opening day? Well, the guy who bats leadoff on opening day might be different in game two. So can we be honest about that? Right? Yeah. 
Yeah. So, okay. So that first week, I mean, it would not shock me at all if Dylan Carlson opens the season as the leadoff hitter. Um, if it's a left-handed pitcher that they face, if they say Harrison Bader gets a look at leadoff hitter, and do not discount the fact that you're going to see Paul Goldschmidt as leadoff hitter at some point in time. It sure seems like that's going to at least be talked to him, talked with him about. Um, they'll, if that's the best matchup or they want to get him the most at bats or they want to try to do something to give a different look to that leadoff. Um, you know, Joey Votto hit leadoff, so you're probably going to see Paul Goldschmidt at some point in time in leadoff. You know, that if, if, if it changes, it will be based on the performance in spring and someone taking that job and running with it. You know, Tommy Edmond has had that chance before. Um, I, re- I, I do think that Dylan Carlson is going to get a rather long look at that if that's the next kind of phase as he um, grows in the game and, and starts a lead off and is ultimately a number two hitter for the Cardinals, um, you know, but you can, you're going to see that mix dependent on, uh, on matchups. You know, I don't really think there's going to be much of a commitment to one guy in one spot. If there is, it's likely going to be O'Neill at number three and Arenado at cleanup because of how well that worked last season. Uh, you can't see him, Derek, because you're on a phone, but our producer, Tanner Hendrickson, has been clamoring He's for ecstatic. Paul Goldschmidt as a potential leadoff hitter all offseason, and our text line has just been crushing him. So he is legitimately celebrating right now as you say that. So thank <laughs> you for giving... It. Yeah, I mean, you know... It, it makes it, sense. I mean, I talked to us back when we could talk to them. You know, I spent some time there in Jacksonville, with Oliver Marmol, and we we talked about that specific thing, you know, that just the the look of the lineup and what you want to do, and you know, the, the the pitcher gets up there and he's still kind of trying to find his groove, and the first guy he has to face is Paul Goldschmidt, you know, especially if Goldschmidt has great numbers against him, or as Marmol brought up, has great numbers against pitchers like that pitcher, which is something that they really are drilling down on. Um, you can see it. It makes a lot of sense. Derek, we are so lucky to have you here in, th- uh, in St. Louis. I've told you before, I'll tell you again, it is awesome to be able to read your work on a day-to-day basis. We're more informed as fans as a result of it. Thank you so much for hopping on with us today, and we'll talk with you again soon, man. Thank you very much for the kind words, and stay warm out there. Absolutely. Same to you. That's Derek Gould, Cardinals beat writer for the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. Honestly, I think one of the best beat writers in the country. Uh, We are lucky to have him here in St. Louis. Follow him on Twitter at dgould. Alex, there's a million different things that I want to react to on the other side. 65780 is the Air Comfort Service text line for questions and answers as well. If you guys have any questions from the conversation we just had with Derek Gould, if you just have a question for us in general, ask us anything coming up next on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. You've got questions. We may have the answers. Maybe text now to 65780. It's PK and Ferrario's questions and answers on 101 ESPN. 65780 is the Air Comfort Service text line for questions and answers with Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson. I'm Brandon Kiley. We are live from the EMB Granite Studio out at the Centene Community Ice Center. And Alex, we just finished up a great conversation with Derek Gould, the Cardinals beat writer for the St. Louis Post Dispatch. If anybody missed that, I recommend checking that out on the podcast page, 101ESPN.com or the 101 ESPN app. It's all presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers. We were able to get into 
honestly a ton with Derek Gould about where the Cardinals are at and what they could potentially do the rest of the offseason. Alex, what was the number one takeaway you had from our conversation with Derek? Mine was Nolan Gorman because I was a little surprised at, at his thought process to where, I mean, he might not even be on the starting day roster and I think a lot of people are just anticipating him being the starting second baseman for this team because of how much anticipation there is I was really surprised by that one because if he's starting in AAA I think that significantly changes the offense a little better yeah I think they view Juan Yepes the way that we have kind of talked about Nolan Gorman as a potential game changer for the offense especially early in the year I think the Cardinals actually apply that to Juan Yepes I think he's the one that they view as being ready for the big leagues now where he has nothing left to prove down in the minors kind of like he is the hitting version of Jake Woodford or Woodford, there, there's nothing more he can do down in AAA. He's either going to be in your bullpen or part of your rotation probably on opening day. Woodford is. And I think the same is true for Juan Yepes, where what more are you going to ask him to do down in AAA? He's destroyed the pitching down there. Now it's time to find out if he can do that in the big leagues. Whereas with Nolan Gorman, he did that for second half of the season-ish. So I do think maybe there is an opportunity for him to continue to develop down there for a little while, and maybe he's up by May 1st, and that's the way that you go about it. What I found most interesting uh, from his comments were probably about their lineup construction. Tanner's been talking about this, I think, for three months now, about how Paul Goldschmidt is a really intriguing option for the Cardinals to lead off. terrible idea. Look at OBP, Look at OBP. Should never happen. Paul Goldschmidt should never be a leadoff hitter. He's probably their best candidate to lead off. Like, if we're being just objective about who projects offensively to be your best leadoff hitter. Why not put Nolan Arenado there? Because his on-base percentage isn't Why not put Tyler O'Neill there? You could potentially consider that as well, but the strikeout rate is too high. Why not put Yadier Molina there? Because he doesn't get on base. I'm just being sarcastic. If you're looking for a guy to get on base at the top of the order, I, I do think it is Paul Goldschmidt. And then the next question is, okay, but if you put him at the top, who's going to be batting second for you? I think it's Dylan Carlson. So you have Goldie at the top. You've got a switch hitter batting second for you. And then you go O'Neal and Arenado 3-4. Your five-hole hitter, you can kind of figure out from there. Maybe it is Juan Yepes. I, I think that might be the way that they construct their lineup going into next year. And I think that's the way that a lot of smart teams would do it. So I'm fascinated by that, Tanner. Yeah, yeah you know, he had the highest on-base percentage on the team at 3.65 last year. And that's the whole reason that I first thought of it. And, you know, a lot of people say, well, he's not a leadoff hitter. He's the traditional cleanup guy or hits third, hits second. Kyle Schwarber's the same way. I mean, of all the talk we've had about Kyle Schwarber bringing in an impact bat, Guys, he hit leadoff a lot last year. Anthony uh, Rizzo hit leadoff for a majority of his and, time in Chicago. And you heard Derek Gould say it. Say it Joey Votto hit leadoff. So the leadoff spot is no longer just that speed guy. Paul Goldschmidt's got decent wheels. I mean, he's not the, as fast as he once was. He's not going to steal 30 bases he's for Mr. you. Fundy. Yeah, Fundy. He's Mr. Fundy. Yeah, Mr. Fundy. Fundy. And, and if you want to, if you want to support the role for leadoff with Goldie uh, go follow me on Twitter at Tebow101ESPN hashtag leadoff with Goldie use the hashtag formula let's, let's get this in oh, order yeah. well we- Tebow we just got a great text for you ain't no way Goldschmidt should ever bat leadoff uh. I'm a Goldie fan but he's just gonna clog up the bases Good thing Tanner ain't the manager. He'd probably have a lefty catching. That person not on Twitter. They don't need to support the hashtag leadoff with Goldie. You have a great- lefty catching. <laughs> well, lefties what? don't catch. <laughs> okay. Because they they throw right and then they can't throw past the hitter who's on the the 
I, I, I don't. Okay. I, I can't. I can't. I can't. Okay. Uh, I can't string that weed. Uh, six five seven eight zero is the Air Comfort Service tax line. I apologize. I said earlier it's questions and answers. I forgot it's Friday. This is Ask Us Anything, which is a totally different game to play uh, each and every week. Uh, I got one for you, BK. Yeah, Eminem or Machine Gun Kelly? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So what was you this? You said Machine Gun Kelly is going to be he's the guy performing, performing at the All Star Game for the NHL, and I said I'm out on that. And BK's like, well, he's better than Eminem. That's not what I said. And I, I said, said that wow. is a worst take I've ever heard. I said there's very little difference like between Machine Gun Kelly now and Eminem 20 years uh, ago. Yeah, Eminem's a better rapper. I, probably. I, I I actually agree with that assessment. I think Machine Gun Kelly is fine. I find his music to be entertaining. I, I think that he is one of my guilty pleasures uh, when it comes to listening to music. Everybody's got it. I get in my car. I hear a Machine Gun Kelly uh, song. Sometimes I start singing along. Mine, it, it happens. Mine's Boys to Men. I love me some That's boys to men. That's not even guilty pleasure. Everybody likes boys to men. Okay, mine's also 98 degrees. I love some There you go. That, that's a good one for that's you. A that's a great band. 65780 is the Air Comfort Service text line for Ask Us Anything. Uh, let's start with this one from, or let's continue rather, with this one from the 314. There's been a lot of talk about Mikola and his play the last few months. Do you think he could actually be a piece that is involved in a trade to acquire a better defenseman to play with Colton Pareko, Alex? I don't think so. I mean, you're essentially trading a guy who could project to be something that you're trying to trade for. And he's going to be cheaper than what you're trading for. Here's the thing about trading for a defenseman. There's not a lot out there that you can make a trade and actually make it work with your budget right now. Like, there's only a few guys. So I think Mikkel is the best case scenario for you. If you're going to make a move, it's because you feel like you need somebody to play on that third pairing who's better than Marco Scandella and Robert Bortuzzo. But other than that, no, I don't foresee Mikola being a part of any trade. 65780 is the Air Comfort Service text line for Ask Us Anything from the 618. Guys, so when is Carlos Correa going to sign with the Cardinals? Well, Kevin Goldstein said yesterday that it'll happen. No, he said they should. He no, said, I thought he said it will. But he said they, that they should go out there and acquire uh, Carlos Correa. Yeah, it's not going to happen. Why not? It's, it's just not going to happen. Well, Scott Boris has got a great relationship with John Mose Line. When he's old and in his 40s and still doesn't <laughs> yeah. like Nelson And you know Cruz. what? Yeah, Carlos Correa would be a great leadoff hitter for you. Better than Paul Goldschmidt, so go get Carlos Correa. I really don't like you. From the 314... Uh, guys, why did Derek Gould seem like Alex Colomay is absolutely not an option for the Cardinals? I was a little surprised by that. I'm going to be honest with you. When I asked, it, he basically said, like, the Cardinals are looking for this type of reliever. And I said, well, Derek, to paint a picture of what that could look like for Cardinals fans that are listening to this, are you basically painting the picture of Alex Colomay? No. Nope. He, he said, nope. no, then went to the seven other relievers that they could potentially look at. That all seemed to kind of fit in line with, in my mind, how I view Alex Colomay. Uh, but I don't know. Maybe he's just not somebody that they view as being a fit here. I, I don't know. I like Alex Colomay, but I'm, I'm, not, I'm not that good of a baseball mind, so I don't know. But I've always liked Colomay. Yeah, he's I, don't like, I don't like Selman. I don't like Robert Selman. 
He was he's with fine. the Mets, right? Is that yeah. the, that was the one that had like the forty eight percent? I thought, he, I thought he had like a couple of good years, and that was it. He's fine. He's got a really high ground ball rate, and that's what the Cardinals would be potentially looking at. Might as well go see if Matthew Bowman's available. Is he? I, I think his arm is currently dis, is not attached. Matthew to Matthew Bowman would be a better leadoff hitter than Paul Goldschmidt. I hate you so much. I wish you were in this studio right now. Whoa. Wow, that was aggressive. Someone thinks he's Machine Gun Kelly. 65780 is the Air Comfort Service text line for Ask Us Anything from the 636. Guys, do you believe that the Cardinals will end up adding a bat this offseason? Or no, do you just run this forward and see if all the young guys can perform? I believe they were going to add a bat, but after hearing Derek talk about how they view having Yepes on the right, Newt Bar on the left, Gorman coming up, and then you got Walker potentially coming up. If they add a bat, it's going to be a guy that doesn't have much street cred to him in terms of... Brad Miller. Brad Miller. Oh, these got better street cred than what I was thinking. I'm thinking more along the lines of, you know, BK's favorite swipe rights. Those are the kind of guys I'm thinking of. Unless you can get Colin Moran. I love me some Colin Moran. I think Colin Brain is a guy that they might show interest in as that fifth infield option. But even then, I'm kind of dis- distancing myself from my, my point of view on that from earlier in the offseason. I don't know if we see them sign a major league contract bat. I, I just don't see that. I think they like what they have. I think they want to give the kids a shot. And there may be somebody that they sign to a minor league deal like a Jose Rondo and that we might look at and go, wow, that guy's a stud. But other than that. No, I don't think they're going to make a move in the offseason to acquire a bat. Tebow, what about your favorite guy from Pittsburgh? Oh, suit, suit, Sugio. He signed a contract with yeah, Pittsburgh. Yeah, didn't he already re-sign with you Pittsburgh? You could make yeah. a trade. You could make a trade. Oh, yeah. Pittsburgh doesn't trade him in the division. It would cost too much. Trade him, Levator. Uh, from the 352, <laughs> Alex, do you believe that the Blues will re-sign David Perron after the season? Depends on what that cost is going to be. Um, I don't think they're going to re-sign him for what he's making right now. I just think that's too much for a 33-year-old. But I, I, I like the way David Perron plays. He matches this team's identity. If you can get him for a two years, two million per year contract, I think they would do something like this because I think David Perron's role now with the emergence of Saad and Buchnevich and Kairou and Thomas and Barbashev and O'Reilly and Shan, the list goes on and on. I think he profiles more as a third or fourth line player for you. He's physical. He's got a hell of a shot. You could still use him on a power play. I just don't know with how this team's projecting and how you're going to have to pay some of these young stars. I don't know if you can afford to keep him multiple years for more than $2 million. So I would say it's likely they'll re-sign him, but I just don't know how much. I'm kind of with you on that. If you can get him at a reasonable deal, I think you bring him back. If it's going to be a situation, though, where David Perron wants to make what he's making right now, I don't think you can bring I, – I don't think he's going to be back next year. And I never would have said that as recently as a month, six weeks ago. Yeah, but the way that this season has gone, I, I don't think he's a top six forward for you anymore. And I don't know that you're going to pay another guy four million dollars or more to be a third line player for you, because right now, with the way that Braden Chin played last night, he's probably your third line forward for you, right? Or third line center for you, rather, last for you right now. He's making six plus million dollars for the next like five years. Uh, you look at what Brandon Saad is for you. He's making, what, four, five, four and a half million dollars for you. He's probably a third-line player moving forward for this Blues team. 
Are you going to have $15 million tied up into your third line? That seems like a lot. So I would say it has to be a, a contract that makes sense for the Blues. But if he can, if he's willing to accept a two-year, two million dollar deal, like you said, that's probably what you'd pro- want to make it out to be. And honestly, I think you'd probably want to get it a little bit lower than that with incentives. And if he meets those incentives, so be it. But you probably want to get that thing as low as you possibly can to make it work cap-wise. With Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kiley. Coming up at 1245, we'll dive into the junk drawer. But next, it's time for our weekend pick'em. We've got two games in the NFL slate, and there's some other games taking place this weekend as well, including the Blues. We'll get to our weekend pick'em coming up next on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. I hate this time of the week because I'm terrible each and every week at this. Last week, I went 0-2, so just go ahead and fade my picks again this Hashtag week. Hashtag fade BK. This used to be our football pick'em. It has transitioned into our weekend pick'em because there are only two games this weekend, Alex, on the football side of things. Bengals at Chiefs. Chiefs are a seven-point favorite. 49ers at the Rams. Rams a three-and-a-half-point favorite going into the weekend. But we've got the Blues. We've got Mizzou at Iowa State. Illinois at Northwestern and a great college basketball game tomorrow as well. Kentucky at Kansas in the SEC Big 12 Challenge. So those are the other games that we will be picking going into the weekend. Alex, we will start things off with you. You get the first pick. Who are you going with? Well, I took the second pick, but I got the first pick. Um, it's a little unfortunate. I'm going hockey here, boys. Could have seen that one coming. Hockey got me the victory last week. Going with the Jets. I don't blame you. Nope. What oh. is it? Puck line blues? Yeah, I'm, I'm taking the blues in this one. Puck line. I think it's pretty simple. Blues. I think it's pretty simple. The blues play well at home. The blues have one game before they're off for 10 days. The Who blues is going to be in that? The blues empty the tank in this one. So I think they take it to the Winnipeg Jets. Winnipeg's floundering. I think this is an easy selection to uh, start the week off 2-0. and So there you go. I also think my pick is very simple. The He's- Bengals are a good football team. Nobody should look down on what the Bengals accomplished this year. It's the first time we've ever seen a team go from the number one overall pick and take a quarterback to the AFC championship game this quickly. It's the first time that we've ever seen it this quick. The year after they selected Joe Burrow, they are now in the AFC championship game. That is a borderline miraculous turnaround. They're also not ready just yet to take that next step. I view the Bengals kind of the way that I viewed the Bills last year. It's like, hey, they're close. They've got a really good quarterback that you believe in, and he's going to be around for a while where he's going to eventually get one. Joe Burrow will get his. The Cincinnati Bengals at some point in his career, I do believe, will win a Super Bowl. This is not the time. The Chiefs are better than the Bengals. The team that could have taken the Chiefs out was the Bills last week. I do believe the Chiefs will win this game at home, and I do believe that they will cover the seven-point spread. So I'm going to take the Chiefs minus the seven points. All right, well, then I would take the Bengals if I were listening for the plus seven. Uh, So I'm going to go to college. I took the Bills last week. That worked. It's it's hashtag fade BK. Wait. You want to play the replay again with Eminem, not Machine Gun Kelly? T-Bone, go hit that open. Uh, Nah, I don't know where it's at. I don't want to look for it. This is Uh, great. 
I'm going to go college basketball right off the bat here. I'm going Illinois to cover three at Northwestern. It does look like they are going to be without Carbello and Coburn again. Uh, it's it's but, over. But I think they found how to play without them in that win against Michigan State. So I think they'll cover on the road minus three. And I'm going to stick college basketball with my second pick as well. I'm going to take Kansas at home minus three. I watched Kentucky play Mississippi State, I believe who it was. Uh, on I don't remember what day, but they played Mississippi State one day this week. I was not all that impressed with Kentucky. They have a guy that can just rebound like crazy, but I like Kansas in this one. They're at home. Give me the Jayhawks minus three. Damn, I was actually going to go with that game. You know what's funny? I'm sticking with college basketball as well. So, Alex, you're going to have the opportunity to pick the other football game, the uh, Rams versus the 49ers. I wanted the second pick. Iowa State's legitimately good. I won the damn game, too. What they have done this year, after how horrible they were a year ago when they went 2-22, and 22, is amazing. They're a top-10 defense nationwide this year in college basketball. They have wins over Xavier and Memphis and Texas Tech and Texas and Oklahoma State. Missouri had a really nice fight the other night against Auburn. That was their Super Bowl. They got into a fight? <laughs> no. Uh, they... They, they played well against Auburn. They That's not nice. We don't need that. Amen to that, brother. Missouri had their Super Bowl earlier this week. Now they are going on the road to take on a quality opponent who defends very well in Iowa State. I don't see any way the Tigers are able to win this one. So I'm going to take Iowa State minus the 13 points at home against the Tigers. Well, you gave me football. And I'm very thankful for that, although I don't even know why we made that as big of a challenge to pick that Iowa State-Missouri game as you did with that, BK. I'm going 49ers plus three and a half. The 49ers beat the Rams both times this season. One was in overtime. The one earlier in the season was a blowout. I understand Jimmy G is not great. I understand that Jimmy G is hurt. But to me, I think San Francisco's defense is better than the Rams' offense. And I think I think the ability of Debo Samuel with George Kittle, with Elijah Mitchell, and with that offense, I think they can put a or possess a problem to the Rams. So 49ers plus three and a half, they will be representing the NFC in the Super Bowl. Our picks this week, Alex Ferrario picked a shocker with the opening one. He's taking the blues. On the puck line tomorrow night, that's minus 170, so you have to bet $170 to win $100. That seems like a bad play. Alex has the 49ers plus and a half against the Rams, a pick that Tanner absolutely endorses. Tanner is going with Illinois minus the three points and KU minus the three points this weekend. Some really good college uh, college basketball games tomorrow with the SEC Big 12 Challenge. And I am going to be taking the Chiefs minus the seven points at home against the Bengals and Iowa State. State minus the 13 points real quick against the Tigers. Who's winning uh, this whole pick em challenge on BK and Ferrario? I don't know. Oh. No, we know that's not true. Don't know. Haven't There's checked a in a while. Your mic was off. With Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kylie. Coming up in about 30 minutes or so, or 15 minutes rather, we're going to be diving into the junk drawer. But coming up next, Paul DeYoung says this Cardinals team is ready to take the next step. What exactly does that mean? We'll talk about it next on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN.
With Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kylie. So yesterday, Paul DeYoung went on MLB Network Radio, Alex, and he had some interesting comments. He said, hey, this is our time, ladies and gentlemen. Here's what it sounded like. I think it really just was everyone doing their own part uh, to, to win, and I thought we just played great as a team, and you know, it wasn't too much of a big change. I think we all are just starting to realize, you know, we, we saw what Atlanta did last year, and, you know, they came out of nowhere as well. So we all are pretty confident with our group here, and we, we think that we're you – know, it's our time, you know. I mean, we've watched all these other teams have success, and we believe that we're right there with them. So I think really it's just about a belief in ourselves and, uh, you know, just hitting the right, hitting the right stride together. It is interesting, Alex, because I always wonder how much you can actually take from the previous year's World Series champion. Like, you look back at the Washington Nationals. If the if the lesson that people learned from that team was, hey, oh, actually it is smart to build around really high-end, really expensive starting pitching. Well, two years later, it looks like that's probably not the best idea. It's not a super sustainable model, but it did work for them in a one-year sample size. And I think the same might be true about the Atlanta Braves. The Braves cut lightning in a bottle last year, and everything worked out according to plan. Eventually, they were able to overcome all of their injuries. They made the exact right deals at the trade deadline, and all of them came up in a big way once they got to the postseason. You had Jorge Soler mashing taters in the playoffs. You had uh, Jock Peterson coming up with some massive hits in the postseason. And then Freddie Freeman just became Freddie Freeman again eventually. So the Braves were able to make it work, but this was also a team that through the first 100 games of the season was 49-51. and that's not the model that I'm going to be following if I'm the Cardinals, and I don't know how much you can really learn from what they did a year ago, but I do think some of what Paul DeYoung said is true. I view the Cardinals as a realistic World Series candidate this year, in part because I think they're just a better team than they were last this time last year, but also because I don't view the National League as being as strong as it was at this point last year. The Giants lost a couple of their key pieces to what they were a year ago. The Dodgers have quietly lost quite a bit from that team that won 106 games. The Padres are not quite the same scary boogeyman that they were when we were going into the 2021 season. So you kind of look around the National League and I say to myself, like, if you're on the Cardinals and you're in Paul DeYoung's spot, for example, I do think this should be a mindset of why not us. I agree with you on that. And look, if you're going to build off of anything, you're going to build off of the fact that you went on a franchise-setting record streak at the end of the season last year, and you look at that and you say, okay, well, we realize the recipe for success. Now we just have to continue that. My only hesitation is you've got the same team. Now, you, you did add Steven Matz, and you're bringing in some youth, and cool. obviously health is going to be there. Yeah, it was a cool signing, but – you got the same team. It's not like you went out there and, you know, like when, when not to take it away from from baseball and bring it into another sport, but like when hockey, when Ryan O'Reilly makes the comment or Tyler Bozak makes the comment of, yeah, like, let's, let's go win the cup. You believe that because you've retooled that roster. I don't, the Blues didn't, or the Cardinals didn't retool their roster. They're going off of hope that it all trends up from what they finished the season with last year. But I think some of the optimism from Paul DeYoung and where I have my optimism, because T-Bone, it keeps you healthy and it makes you live longer, is bringing in an Ali Marmol, bringing in a Skip Schumacher, 
and enforcing the new philosophical differences that kept the Cardinals away from what they wanted with Mike Schilt. And whatever it may be, if that's tied into them going on a 17-game win streak at the end of the season, then if that's true, then that's where this Cardinals team can build off of. So I would have some optimism with it. My my only counterpoint to you mentioning, you know, it's the same roster is that the same roster is, in theory, going to be healthy this year. I mean, I, I think we've talked about this. Had the Cardinals pitching not broken June, I think we're talking about them possibly winning the NL Central. I mean, they're right there with the Milwaukee Brewers, in my opinion. And I still think they're right there with the Milwaukee Brewers. And that gives me the optimism of, okay, this pitching is going to be healthy this year. And th- I still believe they're going to add a bullpen arm, which is going to just add to the depth of that bullpen. And if that's the case, I think they're right there with Milwaukee Brewers. I think they're potentially avoiding that wild card game. I, I think they're a team that can make a run because they're buying into what they saw in the second half with the offense. I mean, Goldie Arnato O'Neill is, we've talked about it, a not the MV3, but it's kind of right up there. I mean, if they can hit their ceilings, you're talking about a lineup that's going to be really deep. I expect Dylan Carlson to start to take that next step. We've talked about Juan Yepes. We've talked about Nolan Gorman. Those guys, I think they're going to contribute. Lars Newport, I think, is going to take a step forward. I, I agree with the National League is taking a step back. I, I think there's a lot of optimism to have around that, hey, they can go on that deep run. I think right now the way they're constructed, I think health is just the biggest thing that could set them back. If they if they don't get health, if they can't be healthy with their rotation, you're going to have the same issues that you saw last year where you're just basically blanked. Yeah, but if I'm going to say that, then I'm going to say, well, okay, well, I'm worried about the Padres then because they weren't healthy last year. They didn't have Fernando Tatis, and they – they have their pitching staff that's in place. I mean, and I'm not I'm not trying to be Debbie Downer here, but if if you're going off of that narrative, then you're going off of taking all the ifs out of it. And yeah, of course, I think the Cardinals could make a World Series run, but you have to bring the ifs into the conversation. And when you have the same team, that's what makes me a little bit concerned. I, the thing that I, I actually will side with, of course, because I'm the, the Cardinals optimist on this show, uh, the, the place where I will side with Tanner on this is just like, I, I do think June completely skews the way that we looked at the Cardinals season last year. And maybe for some, like, if you're an optimist, this is the way you look at it. June skews everything the way that we view the season. If you're a pessimist, you view it as, yeah, but also look at what they did in September. That 17-game winning streak completely skews everything about the way that you view it, BK. No, I'm saying, like, in general, there's probably a texter that will say, yeah, but it was really just that 17-game winning streak. That's what the Cardinals are hanging their hat on. The reason why I don't view it that way is because, like, you eliminate June 2nd through the 25th, a time span in which the Cardinals went 5-17. and 5-17. That team went 85 and 55 the rest of the year. I'm not just talking about that 17 game winning streak. I'm talking about the entire rest of the season, 85 and 55. Alex, that's a 607 winning percentage for the season. You look around the rest of Major League Baseball, what that equates to is essentially what the Tampa Bay Rays did last year. Like you would have had the second best record in the American League based on a winning percentage for what you did in the 140 games other than that three-week stretch in June when your pitching staff crumbled. So what am I expecting for the Cardinals next year? That. 
Like, I'm just expecting them to basically be the team that they were when they weren't completely depleted in a time span in which you lose Jack Flaherty and Carlos Martinez, and you were already at that point without Miles Michaelis, and you lose Harrison Bader in the outfield for a brief period of time there. Like, they they were broken fundamentally as a team during that stretch. So, yeah, I'd view them as being different than the team that we saw in June And that's what I'm projecting forward for 2022. It's not just about that 17-game stretch when everything went right. It's about the other 123 games that weren't part of the best or the worst period of the season when they just played really well. They played really clean baseball for most of the year. Correct me if I'm wrong, but post-All-Star break, they were one of the top 10 offenses in the National or in the Major League Baseball. Yes, they were top five in the in the National League for sure. So, I mean, like, it's not just the 17-game win streak. I mean, you're talking about a couple of months worth of the Cardinals playing really well offensively, and that's where... That's where the hope is because that's where the biggest concern is. And if you take injuries out of this, you're just looking at the offense and saying, okay, you're banking on Tyler O'Neill having his continued success and Paul Goldschmidt and Owen Arenado, and then you add in the other guys. The optimism is absolutely there if those guys can continue to click, but that's why I've been clamoring so much to get another impact bat and not putting it all on these guys. If you bring something else in, if you upgrade on the offensive side in the area that was your weakest, without the injury problems last season, then I think you absolutely become a World Series contender. But it does come down to you upgrading that rather than saying, okay, well, we hope it turns into something. Yeah, and I think we've mentioned this before, is adding the impact bat more of a need or a want. And the more the offseason's moved along and the more people we've talked to, I think it comes down to more of a want. I I, I think the Cardinals view either a – I think the Cardinals expect two things that are going to improve the offense this year. Actually, I'll throw in a third. I think they think Dylan Carlson's going to have that take that next step this year and be that 20 to 25 home run guy that we've talked about. And I think they expect expect him to improve is it against right-handed pitching where he has struggled one of the sides he's he's just not as good. I expect I think they're going to expect him to make that improvement. I think they actually believe in a bounce back from Paul DeYoung. When I say a bounce back, I don't mean a 270 hitter that's going to hit 30 home runs. I mean him back to 2019 form where he can hit 230 and have 30 home run potential. And then that third one is I, I think they truly believe that the DH spot is going to be solidified with one of those three guys that we've talked about all offseason, Yepes, Gorman, and Newbar, a platoon of those three. I think they expect the offense to improve internally. And then it is just that, okay, you just got to avoid that month of June. And I think the lesson that they we talked about at the start of the segment was don't build like what the Braves did. I think the lesson they're going to learn from the Braves isn't so much how they were constructed. It's just to re, to react quickly when it comes to making a trade because that's what the Braves did. The Braves said – Okay, we're not going to go through a – we've already basically had our month of June. It happened to be almost 100 games. We're 49-51. We're not going to punt on the season because we lost Acuna. We're going to go and get four outfielders and just hope that something happens. One of those four actually turns out to play out well. I think that's where the Cardinals are going to learn their lesson. That way they avoid the June of we're not going to go acquire a starter. We're just going to wait. We think we have the internal option. I think this year, if the starting pitching goes through that kind of injury, or even if it's on offense, I think the Cardinals will learn and say, we have to make a move and we have to make it now. And it's really important that what you're saying there because the Braves reacted immediately. Remember it was, they? I think the first one that they traded for is Jock Peterson, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, and, and we thought they were the, going to flip him. Yeah, the general manager came out and basically said, like, hey, we think that this team is worth continuing to bet on. And if they prove us right, we're going to continue adding to this team. If we're wrong, though, 
in a worst-case scenario, we could always go flip some of these pieces as well as we get closer to the deadline. So they were not – they were super um, proactive as opposed to reactive. And the Cardinals last year were far too reactive in the month of June, and that's got to be the lesson. If there's anything that you can learn from the Braves from a year ago, it, it is that, Tanner. that they were the, the Cardinals were the cautionary tale – and the Braves were the example of what to do instead of what the Cardinals did last year. We did get a text, 65780 is the Air Comfort Service text line from the 314. BK, that's some funny math. What if you remove the 17-game winning streak? What was their record without that winning streak? And if you also discount June. So this is basically like if you take out the worst and also the best and you look at what they were for the majority of the season, which I do think is probably the best way to evaluate any player or team, they ended up, if you take out all of that, 68 and 55 on the season, which is roughly a 90 to 92 win pace. So that's kind of where they ended up on the season. And I think that was about right for that year's team. And if you're able to plug in and you believe that Nolan Gorman's going to be a significant upgrade over a guy like Matt Carpenter, same thing for Juan Yepes being an upgrade over what they had a year ago with Jose Rondon. If you think that Steven Matz can be an upgrade over the guys that you had in your rotation, like Jay Happ or John Lester, the guys that were filling that role early on in the season. And you think that uh, Jack Flaherty can just be solid and consistent this year. I think there's every reason to believe that they're slightly better than what they were last year. So that's kind of where I come out on this. Um, I, I do believe that this is a team that should have those kinds of championship aspirations. And it sounds like that's at least being floated out there by Paul DeYoung as well. Coming up in about 15 minutes or so, does this Blues team need Matthew Kachuk in the offseason? Or has that become less of a need and maybe just a little bit more of a want? We'll get into that coming up at the top of the hour. But coming up next, time for the junk drawer here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Let's open it up. The junk drawer with BK and Ferrario. With Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kylie. So Alex Ferrario is a father to one and soon to be father to two. That's right. How would you like it if you were a father to 129? Uh, I wouldn't be here. That plain and simple. <laughs> okay. I would probably die from exhaustion. A retired teacher from the UK claims that he has been the father to 129 children over the last nine years. Now, you may be asking yourself, he gets around. How is that possible? That you must, seems you must be a good looking man. Very difficult, right? Well, he's done so via sperm do do donation. It may also be of interest to you to know that he is 66 years old. Now, the cutoff to do this the official way is 45. Anybody over the age of 45, health experts say, should not be donating their sperm to these sperm banks, right? You get paid to do that, don't you? This guy does it for free. 
What? His name is Clive Jones. He began his sperm donation at the age of 58. He is now 66 years old. He's been doing this for nine years. How are you 58 and just decide you want to start donating sperm? He has already been claimed to be the father for 129 different children. He has nine more that are currently on the way. And how would you know that? I guess you keep notes of who you've donated swimmers to. This guy. Alex, I don't think I would feel comfortable with this. Like, what? So how is he donating? Is he taking it to a sperm bank? So he's basically doing this on his own. I'm not sure that it is super legal, but nonetheless, here we are. Oh, so he's, like, taking it to people who want, like, a baby? Correct. So what? he apparently has taken this to Facebook now. Um, he keeps busy from referrals from other satisfied comf- customers. Well, um, he says that he first makes contact with a couple to get to know them. Then he sets a date on his planner and gets a call informing him that an ovulation period is close. That's when he will drive somewhere discreet to close close to where the couple lives closes the curtain and does what he needs to do and then they make sure that the job gets so, done. So they get a fresh donation. Yes. <laughs> right out of the oven. <laughs> right out of the oven. It is baked and ready to go. Okay, well, now I know what the problem is here. This man, is he married, do you know? Uh, it does Would not say not. in this story, but I, I, don't, I don't know, know. if this guy's doing this out of the kindness of his heart. I think he's just uh trying to trying to trying to pass along something that could help other people, but it's basically just off of his own benefit. I think he's trying to enjoy his own life and then giving the, you know, results of that to people. I can't decide if this feels right to So me. does this guy have like a sperm bank donation van that he drives around and parks outside people's houses? I, I guess. He has three adult children of his own. He said he was motivated to do this after reading about the plight of people who can't have children and how some had to turn to Facebook to make their arrangements to to get a, a donation. Maybe this dude's just like a legit good person and at the age of whatever, 59, decided, you know what, it's time for me to do some good in this world. Well, and you know what? He's not that far off with this because, like, I, I have a friend who to they couldn't get pregnant so they had by to- the way according to our text line there was a documentary i think on this guy a few years ago really uh, apparently he is married so he does oh. have okay um, so maybe he really is doing this out of own. the kindness of his heart like because there, i mean there are it is very expensive to have to to have to find other means of having a child if you can't get naturally pregnant yep and like you can usually like people can only afford to do it one or two times and then that's it so, hey, more power to him if he's doing it for the right reasons. It just seems a little sketchy that he's doing it for the wrong reasons. Th- that's that's what I would be a little concerned about is just like, I, I guess it doesn't matter if you're one of these people who like you couldn't have a child any other way. And but I mean, how, you, you've you seen it. it the, the gift of life is like the greatest thing that yeah. you could possibly have. So, But how God do you explain them, that to a hospital? Because like you can't like you got to go to a hospital with the sperm donation yeah, and I don't say, know. here, I, I want to get pregnant. 
I don't know. I, I don't know how that ends up working. And you say I, there's a documentary on this? He said, uh, yeah, it says in this story that does there was a documentary the, that was created a few years ago. Does anyone ago. know what the documentary is called? It's called Four Men, 175 Babies. Wow. The 2018 documentary uh, follows the lives of the four men who donated sperm to women who contacted them online. So apparently he was uh, part of the subject I of that I might have to look into that documentary because I, 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 I'm generally – curious is if this guy's doing it out of the kindness because you'll know immediately if he's doing it out of the kindness of his heart or is he just a creep but if you're a creep you'd probably be trying to make money off of it yeah he said uh what if his anonymous children end up getting married uh, that's the other thing like 129 different children that, that's a lot of children and man it's in the same area code too that's pretty wild so it, it's it's just crazy story i i I had never heard of this prior. I have not seen the documentary. I, I just can't even imagine uh, doing something like this. I I would it would give me the heebie-jeebies a little bit. But again, like you said, like it's super expensive to get this done just, other it, with other means. Just not sure how much I'd prefer the man who's going to donate that to be outside my house. <laughs> Getting he's, in a, he's in a discreet location. It's fine. Yeah, it's a discreet location. He pulls back the uh, the curtain. What happens totally if he gets okay. pulled over? Someone knocks on the window. Sir, what are you doing in there? Uh, donating children. <laughs> Yikes. He's Alex Ferrario. That's Tanner Hendrickson, and I'm Brandon Kiley. In 15 minutes, we'll get to our weekend look ahead. 65780 is the Air Comfort Service text line for One's Gotta Go coming up at 1.30. But next, does this Blues team need to add Matthew Kachuk the way that we felt about it before this season and if not, what does that say about the development they've had this year? We'll talk about it next on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Before the season, Alex, I felt like it was necessary for the Blues to upgrade their top six, like with a with a stud. And of course, the name that immediately came to mind for all of us was Matthew Kachuk. There were questions about Vladimir Tarasenko. We didn't know what it was going to look like with Pavel Buchnevich. I certainly didn't anticipate a season like this coming from uh, Ivan Barbashev. And yet here we are today, and your, your wingers going into the game tomorrow night are Buch and Barbie, Tarasenko and Kairou, Saad and Perron. I love all of those options for this team right now. And so as we go into next offseason, this is probably going to be the last time that we talk about this for a while uh, because this is the last time that the Blues are going to be playing against Matthew Kachuk in the Calgary Flames for a while. I'm not sure if it's as urgent for the Blues to add Kachuk as I felt like it would be coming into the season. Did you get that same? Do you have that same feel right now about the Blues or do, do you think this will change once we get into the offseason? No, I absolutely have changed my opinion on that. I don't think it's absolutely necessary to get Matthew Kachuk. I think coming into this season, I didn't know when we were talking Matthew Kachuk, it was before Doug Armstrong pulled the trigger on the Pavel Buchnevich trade because that was the trade that they all needed to make. 
because you did know this was when Vladdy came out and said he wanted to be moved. This was when you still had Zach Sanford and Sammy Blay, and you're looking at this team thinking, well, Thomas hasn't taken the right turn. Jordan Cairo, we're not sure about. He looks like he could, but is he going to be able to, to put back-to-backs? And you knew Sanford and Blay weren't going to be top six forwards for you. So we were saying they need to go get this guy because it was kind of tied in with the Vladimir Tarasenko. Little did we know that they went out and got a Pavel Buchnevich, who is a prototypical 60-70 point scorer in the National Hockey League. Brandon Saad is a 25-goal scorer on this team. And, I mean, he's only 28 years old. Like, that's what people are forgetting. None of those guys are Matthew Kachuk. They're not even on the same level as Matthew Kachuk. But Doug Armstrong has built this team to not thrive off of one player. It thrives off of an entire roster. So, to go out and acquire Matthew Kachuk in a trade, I don't think it's necessary. If you can sign him as a unrestricted free agent when he is available, if he is available, then you check in on it because I think he's a good asset to this team. But I think if you're going to trade for something like this, it means you're not happy with your roster. And we all agree that this is a Stanley Cup caliber team. So make a trade for Matthew Kachuk doesn't fix the problems on this Blues team. It actually just makes more of a problem because you're going to be trading away assets, whether it's defensively or on the forward position, which is going to take a hit at that spot, which they're strong in, and you're not upgrading on defensively. So, no, I don't think it is a need. I think it's a want. See, I, I, I'm i with you. I, it's definitely a want. I, I think where we, where we go into the fork in the road a bit is should they still do it? Like, yes, it is a want, but is it still a want where it's like, okay, maybe it's still worth it, even though it's not necessarily a need for your team, but you can still improve by adding a Matthew Kachuk, right? And when I look at what the the forward lines are going to be here over the next few years, Alex, guys that are guaranteed to be locked in, in my mind, I think there are five of them right now. It's Saad, Thomas, Kairou, Buchnevich, and Shin. I think those guys are locked in. Like, for don't even have to look at the contract status. Those guys will be here for the next three to five years at a minimum, right? Do you agree with that as a starting point? Those five guys are locked in. Yeah, I think that's Saad, Thomas, Kairou, Buchnevich, and Shin. I think that's absolutely spot on. The other four guys that I would throw into this mix of being kind of question marks up in the air about what their future is going to hold for them here in St. Louis is when it comes to the forwards, at least. Tarasenko, I just don't know. Ryan O'Reilly, I think he'll be back. I would like to see him back, but right now he only has, after the season, one more year left on his contract, and that's going to be something that if you bring in a guy like Matthew Kachuk or a big money forward, maybe that does throw at least that into flux a bit. Also, there's the question about the no-movement clause and whether or not he's going to want one and if Army's going to be willing to give him one. He's going to want one. The other guys that are thrown into this conversation are Barbashev, Sonny, and Jake Neighbors. Where does Jake Neighbors fit into all of this? Because the plan is, I would imagine, he's going to be a top nine forward for you as soon as next year. They want him to be included in that. Where does he fit into that mix? Tarasenko, I think, only has one more year left here in St. Louis, regardless of what happens. I don't think he's going to be resigning here. And I think the likely option is he's probably going to be traded in the offseason. We'll see what that ends up netting you back in return. And then there's Barbashev and Sonny, and those guys next year is the final year of their current contract, both of whom are at 2.25 uh, and then 2.75 for Sonny. 
I just don't know what they're going to be looking for money-wise, where they're going to fit into the mix with your forward group. And so the reason why I bring all of that up is because if you've already got five guys locked into your top nine, and I think you can probably go ahead and put neighbors into that group as well, that's six. You have three spots remaining in your top nine for Tarasenko, Barbie, O'Reilly, Sonny, and then maybe figuring out what you could do with a trade like this for Kachuk. It just gets really busy up there up front. So I do think there's a way that you can make this work by trading from that depth. Yeah, uh, and there's absolutely a way you can can make it work, but I just don't know if it makes you that much better of a team. I I mean, you're already one of the highest scoring offenses in the National Hockey League. What about when you remove Tarasenko from the equation? Like, let's say Vladdy does not go back on his word. Let's go down this hypothetical scenario. And he wants to be traded this offseason, even if they win the cup. He says, you know what? I'm glad we had so much success as a team. I had a ton of fun this year, but I still don't feel totally comfortable here. It's not because of Barubi. It's not because of the teammates. Medically, he that's what he said up front. Maybe he still doesn't feel comfortable here. He would like to be traded this offseason. He did what Army said he needed to do, which was prove his value. He went there and had success so much so that the Blues won the cup. And now you're going into the offseason, and he wants to be traded again. Do you still feel the way then about the offense that you're feeling right now that you're confident in it to the point where you don't need to add anything I do yeah and because I think that's where Jake Neighbors comes into play I mean Jake Neighbors is then a top nine forward for you I mean look if you didn't have Vladdy this season I think Jake Neighbors would have skipped juniors and he would have been on this team but the reason he wasn't was because they didn't want him on the fourth line I just I think you have you have elite players on this team in Cairo and Thomas, and then you have that next tier down of Buchnevich and Saad, and then you have the guys who just are indispensable, in my opinion, in Shannon O'Reilly. To me, that is a better top not and then Ivan Barbashev I didn't even bring into this, and I think he's a wild card here. I think he could be a guy who's just, at best, a streaky player, but he could also be somebody who is going to be massively underpaid for how much of a... 200-foot player he is for the Blues. And it's not just points with him. It's the way he plays defensively. Like Craig Berube, Doug Armstrong, they want two-way forwards. They just don't want playmakers. And Matthew Kachuk is that guy. Here's the thing that I always come back to with this. Take Ryan O'Reilly out of this lineup. Are you a better team? Even if you put Matthew Kachuk in, I, I think you're, 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 you have a massive hole that people don't understand. And if you get Matthew Kachuk, I just don't know if you're going to have a Ryan O'Reilly. But the thing is, I don't need to do that. I can take out Tarasenko and Perron, and that's where I'm filling the gap. Temporarily, but long-term when Kyrou's going to... that's gonna, the salary slot. But but when Kyrou's going to have to get paid, and Thomas is going to have to get paid, and Barbashev's going to have to get paid, then those guys... And let's also not discount if the Blues are going to try and pay Villejuso. I mean... That's something you got to take into consideration, at least for the short term. But not to digress on that, the big ones, the money that is opened up by or by Tarasenko and Perron, like that's what about eleven and a half, twelve million dollars. Mm-hmm. That's going to look great next season if they both aren't here. But the year after that is when the RFA status is up for Thomas and Cairo. And if they continue this pace, where Thomas is a fifty assist guy and Cairo is an eighty point player. They're going to be getting paid five, six, seven million dollars. So that twelve million dollars that's opened up is going to go back to those two players, and that's where you bring in Kachuk. You're going to have to cut two more players out of that equation. Yeah, I mean the the reality is like you just might not be able to bring back Sonny and Barbie. 
Like it, it, it stinks, but if Barbie, if this is real, if what we're watching right now is a 25-plus goal scorer, he's going to get a deal similar to what Buchanovich just signed, the $5.8 to $6 million per season. And if the Blues already have Shin and O'Reilly and Buchnevich and Saad and Thomas and, and Kairou all signed up to deals that are $4.5-plus million, I don't know that you can sign another one for an Ivan Barbashev. So, and I do think that O'Reilly is going to come in at a, a figure below where he's at right now at seven and a half. These are all the difficult questions though, that have to be asked by Doug Armstrong. And it's why it's not as simple as just saying like, do you go out there and acquire Matthew Kachuk? Yes or no. Of course, we all want them to get Matthew uh, Kachuk. Of course, don't get me wrong. Like Matthew Kachuk, I, I would, I would be the biggest fan if the news broke tomorrow that they traded multiple players for him. Yeah, I like, everyone wants him here. He would be a great piece to add to what they're doing right now. The question is, though, at what cost? And that's not just via trade. It's also the money. You've got to make the money work, and it gets a little dicey for guys like O'Reilly and Barbie and Sonny if you're going to go this route. You're probably going to have to at least get rid of two of those three if you want to go out there. And David Perron probably can't be back other than Correct. if it's at a super below market value price. Um, and you're probably going to need Kairou and Thomas to take a little less than that, what they would get on the open market. Like and all of that has to happen. And also you have to make the deal for, uh, for Kachuk right now where you're going to have to give up assets. And also he probably needs to take slightly less than what his market value would be. Right. If all of that works, you can make this thing happen. You've got O'Reilly and Shin and Buchnevich and Saad and Kairou and Thomas, and we're moving forward. And this thing is going to be real fun. But it's just it, there's a lot of moving pieces to make this thing yeah, work. And what's the biggest thing people are frustrated about other than goaltending? It's defense. And you're not going to have any cap space to make a upgrade on defense if you bring in a Matthew Kachuk. And think about what you just said. The assets you're going to have to move? Well, then you're going to have a glaring hole in terms of the future of guys that you just don't know if they're going to be up here. So I just think if you try and trade for him, it's going to take a massive blow to the team that you have in place in this window that is open this year and next year. Whereas if you just wait, if you just be patient, like the fast lane guys talk about, and he's an unrestricted free agent, you don't know what your team looks like because it's no coincidence that Ryan O'Reilly and Matthew Kachuk will be UFAs at the same time. So I think it's one of those things that you sit there and you say, if we get them, great. If, if Calgary comes calling and say, hey, one for one, Tarasenko for Kachuk, which we talked Pat Steinberg yesterday, is not going to happen, great. Otherwise, I'm going to wait until he becomes a UFA and Roll the dice and see if I can get them. He's Alex Ferrario. That's Tanner Hendrickson. I'm Brandon Kiley. Coming up in about 15 minutes, 65780 is the Air Comfort Service text line. You give us four options. We will tell you which one has got to go. But coming up next, it's our NFL weekend look ahead. Two game slate, AFC and NFC championship game on Sunday. We'll tell you what we're most looking forward to coming up on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Oh, yeah. 
yes, we have a good slate on Sunday, a slate that you'll be able to come out and hang, hang out with us on Sunday at Helen Fitzgerald's. It begins at noon with the pregame show. Randy Carricker and Anthony Stalter will be hosting that. Then we're going to be watching the games live from Helen Fitzgerald all together for our champ bash. We do this each and every year. We are back at it on Sunday, beginning at noon, all the TV, some drinks, some food, everything you could want. Come hang out with everybody from 101 ESPN on Sunday at Helen Everyone? I think everybody. I, I don't know that Michelle's going to be well, there. I know she's going to be out of town, but otherwise I'm pretty sure everybody's going to be there. I heard the guy say yesterday on the fast line that Jamie Rivers is trying to steal that barbecue pit, and uh, I'm going to steal it before him. So. Okay. You guys helping with me with that? Nope. T-Bone? I love no. our sponsors. I love each and every one of I them. I would never too. disrespect that's any what, of them. By the uh, product is so great. That's them. why I just I want it so bad. Okay, that, that's what it is, huh? Yeah. T Bone, you helping? No, but that was well played. Thanks. I can really use your By the way, all of it you is. You can use uh, a girl. Is that what you said? I could use a grill. I said. Oh, sorry. I can use a girl too, but I, I need a grill. Right now, That's too. what Sanders for, big guys. <laughs> it's all presented by Bud Light and Car Shield. Okay. Huge thanks to them for making this possible for us. All right, let's dive into some of these games, Alex, because I, I'm really excited about this weekend's matchups. And I feel like for me, I don't know if this is the case for you and Tanner, but I've kind of been looking at the Chiefs-Bengals game through the prism of, okay, the Chiefs are going to win, and this is what it means when they do. Let's flip that on its head for a second. Let's say that the Bengals actually find a way to win this game. Joe Burrow goes into Kansas City and takes down the the fearsome Chiefs after what they did a week ago. Don't be surprised, so surprised by it, PK. It's going to happen. I mean, it's possible. They're a seven-point favorite at home. About 25% of the time, a team that's uh, in a seven-point underdog wins. Oh. So one out of every four times this game is played, the Bengals win. It's totally in play that they do. What does that do for us as a football-watching community? How do we change our look at Joe Burrow, at uh, Taylor, their head coach, at the Bengals as a team and their trajectory if they are able to beat the Chiefs on the road and go to the Super Bowl this year? I don't think it changes anything in terms of the Chiefs because if this happens, it's because the defense lets them down. It's not going to be on Patrick Mahomes. And I don't think it changes anything for Cincinnati. I think for me, this just would mean it was it – was, it was meant to be for the Bengals to go on this type of run because we've all agreed their roster's good, but their roster seems like it's good enough to do something, but it needs work, and then probably within the next couple of years, they'll be Super Bowl favorites probably in the AFC. I, I think the winner of this one, if it's the Chiefs, it just solidifies my opinion on what they have built there in terms of a dynasty for how good that team truly is and let it run as much as possible before you're going to have to have it break up when money takes over. But if Cincinnati wins, I'm probably going to be talking about Kansas City's defense, and I'm more so going to be just be talking about how this is just the year for Cincinnati, more so of, oh, they've overtaken Patrick Mahomes. I'm not there yet. Yeah, that's, that's where I am, is it's basically going to be – you know, they're not there yet because I, I said it. I think they're still two, three years away before being legitimate Super Bowl contenders. I, I think what it'll be is it's just going to be the, oh, okay, this is their year. This is their run. And then they're going to have to come back to earth on expectations maybe a little bit the previous, the following year. Because again, I, I get they're in the AFC Championship game, but I'm like with BK, I don't really view them as having that much of a shot. If they are able to win, then I think it's just one of those, wow, this is just a team that got hot at the right time. They go on a run. I won't view them as in that same tier with Kansas City until about two, three years later when they've really started to upgrade that roster because there's clearly a hole there, and it's the offensive line. Yeah, but the the reason why I actually disagree with where you guys are at on this, I think this is their worst team they're going to have in the next three years. 
Like, I think the Bengals are only going to get better from this. And yes, they do play in a difficult division. And so that'll, it's not going to be easy to get back to where they are right now. But they're also not going to be as poor on the offensive line as they were this year. I do think there are places where they can upgrade defensively from where they were this year. At corner, they're not very strong. They've got a really good nickel, but outside they can upgrade there as well. I think the Bengals are going to be better in the future than they are now. And if that's the case and they're able to get to the Super Bowl now, part of that will be because they had a pretty easy path to get to the AFC Championship. Uh, we talked last week, Alex. People think that the Tennessee Titans were one of the weakest one seeds in the history of the NFL. The Raiders were not a great playoff team. Let's all be honest with that. But they won, and I'm not going to take away from the fact that they were able to get here. And if they beat the Chiefs, I don't know that it mattered who they played. They found a way to do it against the team that everybody thought was the favorite right now. So I actually think it changes a lot about the way that I view the Bengals in the future. Right now, I think they're kind of in the conversation with the Ravens and the Bills and that second-tier contender in the AFC. Maybe the Bills are even a little bit above them. But next year, I view them in kind of that light. If they're able to beat the Chiefs right now, I've got to put them in the same conversation with the Bills and the Chiefs going into next year. And I don't right now have them there personally. The next thing that I wanted to ask you guys about was on the Andy Reid, Kansas City Chiefs side of things. How much is on the line if they're able to do it again? If they get to the Super Bowl again this year and they do it for the third straight year, and now this is four years in a row with Patrick Mahomes that they are hosting the AFC Championship game. The last to do that was actually Andy Reid with the Eagles from 2000 to 2004. If the Chiefs are able to get this done again, does it change anything about it, or is it just like, yeah, of course, Patrick Mahomes and Andy Reid were able to do it? For me, it's just of course. I mean, that's where it's at right now. I think they overcame the, wow, we're seeing a change in the AFC when they beat Josh Allen, and maybe that changes next year. But until somebody takes down Andy Reid and Patrick Mahomes, to me, every year is going to be, yep, they just did it again. I mean, it's, it's the Patriots mentality. That's why we went with the Allen Mahomes, the Brady Manning, because Mahomes is Brady right now. I mean, they get there every year, and if they lose, well, then guess what? The NFC team probably had a hell of a game like we saw last year with Tampa Bay, but if they get there, it's the sa- it's just another day in the NFL season, in my opinion, because that's the best team in the AFC, the Kansas City Chiefs. Yeah, that's the way I view it, and that's why I picked the Chiefs this past weekend. I know BK was scared of Buffalo. My whole mindset heading into that game was, Buffalo's good, but until they beat Kansas City, I will probably not take them. I will be wrong one year if someone takes down the Chiefs, but until they do it, I'm always going to take the Chiefs because to me, it's just like Alex said, another day in the office. There go the Chiefs again on their way to another Super Bowl appearance. Well, if the OT rules weren't cheating and Josh Allen would have got the ball, we probably would have been saying that this year. All about the coin flip, you know, whatever. Should have had that eight-point rule. True. I think what it would do to me is it, it puts him in the conversation with Brady again. And the reason why I say that is because about the rings? Yeah. You got to get you got to start racking them up pretty early. Yeah, you got to win them. <laughs> it is so hard for anybody to be able to get into the conversation with Brady just like it is with the NBA for anybody to get into the conversation with Jordan because he's got 6 and Brady's got 7. And getting to that number, like you got to win one every other year to have an opportunity to do that. And Patrick Mahomes would already have two by the time that he turns 27. And that's difficult to do. So he's going to be early in his career, racking up the rings a little bit, getting to the Super Bowls. And that's the only real thing that it changes for me at all. Right now, I it's really hard for me to even have the conversation about uh, Mahomes becoming the GOAT. 
because of how many rings it would require for him to do so in the minds of most people. If he's able to get one this year, it does at least start to bring that conversation back to light. But I think for a lot of people, the way that it's going to be is, yeah, but the two times that he lost, it was to Tom Brady. The only two postseason losses of Mahomes' career so far are head-to-head against Tom Brady. Yeah, but I, I think with that, though, is at some point, money is going to become a factor with that team, and you're going to see guys that aren't there anymore. And Next year's team's going to look totally different. I don't think Frank Clark's going to be back. I'm not sure Tyron Matthew is going to be back next year. They've got some big decisions to and make And that's going the difference because Brady had teams. It was a revolving door in New England for so long, and he just had people come in and out and in and out, and he kept winning. I just don't know yet if Mahomes can do that without those main pieces. On the other side of the NFC game going into this weekend, 49ers versus Rams. Rams in three and a half point home favorite currently the projections seem to indicate that it's going to be like 65 percent 49ers fans at this game so yeah it'll it'll be basically a home game for jimmy g jerseys in this one and that's where i wanted to begin alex jimmy garoppolo this is where the pressure begins it seems like every week he has one really terrible interception that he throws but it hasn't cost him so far or three of them potentially three of them if the 49ers win this game and Jimmy Garoppolo is at least not terrible. <laughs> Does it have the opportunity to change the path for the 49ers? Like, is there any scenario where you say to yourself, if you're the 49ers, you're uh, John Lynch and Kyle Shanahan, you know what? Maybe it does make sense for us to run this back with Garoppolo as our quarterback next year. I think so. I mean, if he's not awful, because I just you haven't seen anything from Trey Lance this season that makes you think, yep, he's ready to take over. And maybe, and a lot of that is because he hasn't played a whole lot, but. If if you win it and and the offense is the reason why and you know you have Kittle and Samuel and your running backs and here's the thing if I'm San Francisco and I get over this hump I think you have to run it back because you're the superior team in the NFC West obviously Seattle's going through their own problems right now Arizona doesn't know who they are and Kyle Shanahan would be seven and zero in their last seven games against Sean McVay and the Rams so you are the superior team in the NFC West if you win this weekend. So regardless if Jimmy G's average, good, great, I think you have to run it back because what did you just say about Mahomes? Pile up as many rings as you can because you don't know how long this is going to last. If you're getting there consistently, then I think you have to look at it and say, we'll just we'll stick with the team, we'll draft, and then we'll come back with it next year. I think if Jimmy G is great, then yeah, I think you have to really consider running it back. But if he's just average to below average, I mean, that's like – and at the time, Baltimore didn't have Lamar Jackson, but that's like winning a Super Bowl with Joe Flacco. I mean, everybody looked at and went, "Really? You won a Super Bowl with Joe Flacco?" <laughs> they paid him, and, and then you looked him, at and, and then, then you looked went, at Ray oh. Lewis and Ed Reed, and you're like, oh, yeah. "Okay." And then they went, "Oh, we shouldn't have paid him." So, I, I think if he's average, below average, San Francisco can move him. And if they get to a Super Bowl with an average Garoppolo, it just helps bring up the asking price. Hey, you're getting a quarterback that's been to two Super Bowls, even though everybody knows he's average. Unless he's really great, like he was in week 18 in that second half against the Rams for two games in a row to win a Super Bowl, that's the only way I think the 49ers keep him. Yeah, see, one of my favorite NFL draft analysts, his name is Daniel Jeremiah. He works for the NFL Network, and he always brings up the conversation with quarterbacks. Are you a tractor or are you a trailer? And what he means by that is the tractor is a guy that's going to pull everybody else along with him. So you're looking at Patrick Mahomes, Josh Allen, Um, Aaron Rodgers, those are the guys that are the driving force. They are the reason why their team wins or loses games. The trailer is the guy that the supporting cast is lifting you up. They are carrying you. So far in Jimmy Garoppolo's career, he's been a trailer. 
He's been the guy that, because his supporting cast is so good, he is a reflection of them, and they are able to win as a result of that. Guys, in his playoff career, he has five postseason starts so far in his playoff career. And in those five games, he has thrown for 700 yards. In five games, Alex, that's an average of about 150 yards per game. You're looking at two touchdowns and five interceptions in those five career postseason games. Wow. He is the definition. When they say tractor versus trailer, they should have a picture that is showing of Jimmy Garoppolo. So unless that changes, unless he suddenly becomes the Matt Stafford last week for the Rams, where he is making plays that are forcing them to win, I just don't see how you run this thing back. I know that it is a risk with Trey Lance, but whether it's Trey Lance or going out and making a move for one of the quarterbacks that becomes available this offseason who would be an upgrade over Jimmy Garoppolo, I think that's the route that the 49ers have to go. That's the other caveat with this, too. Like, what are my options? If I can get Aaron Rodgers, I don't care if Jimmy G's the MVP. I'm going to go get Aaron Rodgers. But if the other options are... average quarterbacks, if he gets me there, I'm just going to run it back. Final thing here is the LA Rams. I find them to be interesting from a team building perspective, Alex. If the Rams are able to get this done, not only against the 49ers, they get that monkey off their back. They win for the first time in three years head-to-head against Kyle Shanahan. If you're able to win this game and then maybe even go on to win the Super Bowl, Do you think we're going to see other teams start to emulate the formula that they have used, which is going out there and treating draft picks as if they're candy and handing them out to everybody? They're Oprah Winfrey saying, you get a draft pick, and you get a draft pick, and you get a draft pick, and they're trading them all over the place for all of these veterans. Will other teams start to follow that formula if the Rams prove that it can work at the highest of levels? I want to say yes, but I just don't know if teams are confident enough to pull the trigger on things like that because uh, obviously some teams have more – money to spend than others and some teams feel like they can compete i think the only reason the rams were able to do that was because they knew that they they knew they could get the quarterback for the right team and a lot of teams may not have the right quarterback for that but i think if they win you're going to see a majority of those borderline teams teams that know they're good but just not sure when they can get over the hump I can see that happening. Like, I could see the Carolina Panthers, if it works for the Rams, saying, blanket, let's go, and start spending and spending and spending. Whereas, you know, those bottom dwellers like Jacksonville, they're not going to be doing that because I think they just enjoy the fact of, we'll just keep piling up these prospects and hope sooner or later. trafficking. Yeah, the Jets, we'll just keep piling them up and see what happens. Sooner or later, one of these second overall picks are going to turn into something. Yeah, I think it depends on, A, if you have just – a decent quarterback. Because let's for, not forget the Rams started this with Jared Goff, and they started by acquiring uh, Brandon Cooks. They acquired him from New England. I think they gave up a early second or a first round pick for him, and then they just kept adding on. And then they decided to go get Stafford and really go for it. I, I think there will be some teams that do it. I don't think there will be a lot, though. I, I think you could see a great team, maybe like Buffalo. Maybe they say, "Hey, this is how we get over Kansas City. We go." all in and just sell the future and get rid of these first round picks and improve or you could see maybe a team that has that mid-level quarterback maybe it's the Raiders or someone like that could try it but I would say you're only going to see probably one to three teams try it in the future I don't think a lot of teams are going to do it I think it's I think you guys are exactly right I think it'll be very specific as to who the teams are that are willing to do it and most of that's just job security most of these general managers are just trying to stay employed they want to keep getting that three to five million dollar paycheck that goes into their account every year and unless you are one of those teams that is super confident in your job security your coach and your general manager specifically 
I think it's pretty rare that you're going to see other teams decide to go this route. Team like the Cowboys, maybe they start doing it a little bit more often. Maybe you see Jerry get a little aggressive in the offseason, and he starts throwing money and draft picks all over the place. But there aren't a whole lot of teams that have the system in place, the people in place that are as secure with their jobs as the Rams front office and head coaching staff is right now in theirs. With Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kylie. Let's get our picks real quick. Straight up, Bengals or Chiefs? Who do you guys have, Alex? I got the Chiefs. I got the Chiefs. I've got the Chiefs as well. 49ers versus the Rams. Who do you have winning this one, Alex? I got the Niners. My gut tells me the Rams figure a way to overcome Shanahan and his system, so I'm going to go Rams. I'm going the Rams as well. I just feel like this is kind of like last week where you saw at the very end when it mattered the most, the got to have it play. I think Stafford is the one that I'm willing to trust to make that play more so than Jimmy Garoppolo. I just think the defense won't allow totally Stafford get to make that play. And the Rams yep. special teams aren't as bad as Green Bay's. Yeah, they're, they're, they're not going to. Nobody's, nobody's special teams. An eighth grade team is not as bad as Green Bay's special teams. Yeah, 49ers won a game without an offensive touchdown for the first time in the NFL playoffs since 2016. Way Don't to think go, that's going to happen in back-to-back weeks. Coming up next, 65780 is the Air Comfort Service tax line. You give us four options. We will finish out the week with one's got to go here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. This is PK and Ferrario. Time now for One's Gotta Go. We offer up the talking points and you get to pick which one's gotta go on 101 ESPN. That's Alex Ferrario. He's Tanner Hendrickson. I'm Brandon Kylie. We're finishing up the week with a game of one's got to go. 65780 is the air comfort service text line. You give us four options. We will tell you which one's got to go. One's got to go sick edition. What? A headache? Nausea? The runs or a sore throat? Alex, which one's got to go? Jeez. Well, you I could can only get rid of one of these. I can already tell you, I'm getting rid of the runs. Been there. That, that is the worst of all of these. I can Been handle there. a sore throat. Nausea stinks, but usually when that happens, I go force myself to vomit so I can get it over with. I don't get headaches, so that doesn't really bother me. The runs are the absolute worst because not only do you feel like crap afterwards, but you are sitting there literally. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Runs got to go. <laughs> we got the vibe. Have you ever had the norovirus? What's that? It, so it, it's a contagious virus. We we got it one time, both myself and uh, and Kara, a kid around us had it, and we were unaware that the child had this this virus. And what ends up happening is you there's like this intense feeling of needing to vomit while also having to go uh, to the bathroom as well at the same time. Number three, it, it was horrifying. So you, so you, it's super fast. Like it's like a 24 hour bug. So you where feel it like it's going to come out of the basement and the attic at the same yes, time. Yes, that sounds it awful. Was, Good thing, good thing my toilet is facing my bathtub because it's easy to do. I woke up. We were taking a nap. It was like a Sunday afternoon. I woke up, and I was like, this was like five, six years ago. I was like, I think my stomach's hurting. By the time I got to the bathroom, I was like sprinting to the toilet to make sure that I got it in the toilet on time. And for the next, I'm not kidding you, Alex, like four hours, it was nothing but me and Kara switching turns as to who was going to the bathroom. you only have one bathroom? Yeah. At the time, we were living in an apartment. It was a one-bedroom, one-bathroom apartment. It was 
terrifying. When it's called oh, the norovirus. Norovirus. N o r o virus. It, I, I think it happens on, if I'm not mistaken, a lot of the times where it takes place is like on a uh, cruise ship because you got so many people within close quarters. I'm never going another. on a cruise ever again, oh. so that's probably why. <laughs> it's brutal, man. Absolutely brutal. Nope. Tanner, which one's got to go oh, for you? It's got to be the runs, easily. I can handle the headache. I can handle uh, whatever else was on there. The sore throat. The sore throat does suck, but... I was about to say, that that's the one that I'm get getting rid it. of. Really? Yeah. Just suck on throat lost oh, the whole time. Yeah. It's the worst, man, especially doing what we do. It, it's brutal. If you get one on, like, a Tuesday and it lingers throughout the rest of the week, no fun. Yeah, but we can power through it. Well, I, I am a total wimp when it comes to basically anything, but definitely I'm a, sore throat. I'm a wimp when it comes to consistent number threes. 65780 <laughs> is the Air Comfort Service text line for One's Gotta Go. One Gotta Go Overtime Edition. The NFL's overtime, MLB man on second and extras, the NHL's shootout, or college football's overtime rules. So Alex, remind me of college football. The first team that scored like a field goal is over? No. So it's you get the ball at the 25 and you're going alternating possessions into the end zone oh. to see who scores the most second, points. Second overtime, you got to go for two no matter what. And the third is when you I, start going for the two-point contest. I think I'm going to get rid of that one because that sounds like it doesn't create any excitement for me. Oh, it's exciting. Is I it? mean, it's it's not a great way to crown a winner, Illinois, but it's Penn definitely State exciting. Game was intense. I guess that's true, yeah. I mean, look, I'm all for because I think the Chiefs cheated and shouldn't have beat the Bills. Oh Amen. But, like, I don't understand the whole thing about the overtime rule in the end. Like, it's a coin toss. We were just talking about this off air. What's the difference of a coin toss and a puck drop in a three-on-three overtime? It's a 50-50 face-off win. Yeah, well, uh, I think people feel more confident that someone has an ability to win a face-off rather than a coin spinning in the air. Usually when you take on a team and they win a face-off, if they're fast, you're not going to touch that puck in three-on-three overtime. But with... Without me going on a long tangent here, I think what I will get rid of is the man on second base rule in baseball. I think that's the worst one out of all of these. Tanner, do I even need to hear your answer? Well, I I have actually, I said this, I think yesterday, I'm not that big a negative on the runner on second. I would rather the runner start at first, but I, I'm getting rid of NFL overtime. As long as it's just get rid of the coin toss. If it was as simple as, hey, the home team's going to get the ball first, and then if they score a touchdown, it's over. Yeah, we I'm fine on that. What's the difference if the home team gets the ball first? We're still complaining about it. No, nah, because then I know what's going to happen. I just hate the idea of the 50-50 coin toss. Eh, get rid of the NFL's overtime. We were talking about this during the break. What's the difference between a coin toss and a face-off in, in overtime? He wasn't listening to me. Like no, he the, wasn't. The, the face-off in overtime, Tanner, Whoever wins that, if that team ends up in a three-on-three -three situation going down and scoring, they win the game. I get it, but there's the other more team of a human doesn't element. just automatically get a possession. There's more of a human element in a face-off than a freaking coin flipping in the air. Okay. So that they, they are in it's charge just a, of their it's own. It's just a destiny. puck that is exactly. freaking flipping in the air. Exactly. Right. Okay. Glad you Six five seven eight zero is the well, air cover service it, text line. Four one's got to go. Pull the team on there. My voice that could have gone better. I'm actually going with the college football overtime rules. I hate college football's overtime. I think it's really hokey, and I don't think it's a great way wish to crown a champion. I wish I would have stuck with that. One's got to go. Bar food edition: burgers, nachos, fries, or wings. Which one's got to go? Bar food edition: burgers, nachos, fries, or chicken wings. This one's simple: nachos. Nachos are good for what? 
Nachos are good for 10 minutes, and then they become soggy and nasty. By the time you get to the... You don't like nachos? I love nachos, but if I'm going to get rid of one of these three, I'm not getting rid of wings or burgers or fries. Nachos, because they're great, but after 5, 10 minutes, they're soggy and nasty, and the cheese gets cold. And you're not going to eat a whole plate of nachos in 10 minutes, unless you do, and... Might need other conversations See, mine, that. Would, mine would be the fries, mostly because if I get fries and they get cold, they're not as good. But, like, chips are still – or nachos, excuse me, are still pretty good, even if they happen to be cold. I'm getting rid of the fries. Yeah, why, what's what's not to love about cold cheese and flimsy chips? Well, I mean, I'm thinking fries. I'm thinking, like, cheese fries with, like, bacon bits on it or something like well, that, Well, those too. would be loaded fries. These are just French okay, fries. Okay, but they would be worse if they get cold. Well, if you don't have the French fries, you probably can't make the loaded fries, to be fair. Yeah. Well, maybe they should have labeled it as loaded fries. Fair. Uh, I'm getting rid of the nachos as well, actually. I love nachos, but I'm specific about when I order nachos. Like, if I'm going to a baseball game, there's a good chance I'm probably going to be ordering the the plastic cheese to go along with my stale chips and throw on some jalapenos on the side. There ain't nothing better, man. There's nothing better. Yeah, so you can eat that quickly before it gets nasty. Correct. And the cheese isn't actually on the chips whenever you order it, typically when you go to a ballpark. I'm never ordering nachos when I go to a bar. I'll give I you a great, great example. Where were we at where um, it's uh, up? Completely forgetting. Westport Social? Up, yes, when we were up there and we were walking around talking. With I don't know how I knew that I you were talking you about either. Westport Social. I was going to say <laughs> somehow I knew. I when we were to the, going to Westport Social. Well, you weren't you there. You didn't go. You weren't oh. invited. When we were at Westport Social and we were walking around, I ordered nachos and they were sitting there next to Kara and I came back and tried them after we were gone for 15 minutes. I'm like, these are disgusting now. Yeah. I ate them because I'm not going to waste food and social how, or Westport Social has great food, but... Um, I, I let the nachos sit too long. Yep, that's that's what it was. Don't, don't sleep on the nachos, T-Bone. 65780 is the air comfort service tax line for One's Gotta Go. This is the last one for today. One's Gotta Go young quarterback in the NFL edition. Joe Burrow, Patrick Mahomes, Justin Herbert, Josh Allen. Burrow, Mahomes, Allen, or Herbert. Which one's got to go, Alex? Herbert. I think uh, the other three have shown me a lot this season, and Herbert... Still haven't gotten there yet. I know I know you love him, BK. It's my boy. I'm sorry, I, but uh, we haven't gotten there yet, so Herbert's got to go. I think I'm with you. I, I think I'm with going Herbert as well, and it's mostly just because he hasn't really won anything yet, and it's not all on him, but Burrow doesn't have an offensive line to save his life, and he still has gotten to an AFC championship Should have drafted game. a left tackle. Yeah, Jamar Chase. Overrated him, am I right? Amen no, to that. He's not, not a, right. he's not a left tackle. I mean, it's the right answer. Like You've got to get rid of... of Herbert because Joe Burrow has completely changed the culture in Cincinnati. Josh Allen is a freaking alien right now with what he's able to do. He's Cam Newton, that's but with true. an arm. That's that, that's impossible. That's I never thought point. I would see that type of a player in the NFL. He's 6'5", 250, and the dude runs like a 4'6", and he runs over people. It's absurd. So, yeah, you, you got to get rid of Justin Herbert in this situation. For Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendricks, and I'm Brandon Kylie. You guys have a fantastic weekend this weekend. If you miss anything from today's show, be sure to check it out on the podcast page. It's all presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers. We'll be back at mon- on Monday at our usual time of 11 a.m. Tim McKernan back on Monday for the balloon party at 10. Coming up from 2 to 6, it's the Fast Lane. We'll talk to you on Monday here on 101 ESPN. You've been listening to the BK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN.
Geico asks, how would you love a chance to save some money on insurance? Of course you would. And when it comes to great rates on insurance, Geico can help. Like with insurance for your car, truck, motorcycle, boat, and RV. Even help with homeowners' or renters' coverage. Plus, add an easy-to-use mobile app, available 24-hour roadside assistance, and more, and GEICO is an easy choice. Switch today and see all the ways you could save. It's easy. Simply go to GEICO.com or contact your local agent today.